Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It is Tuesday morning, September 27, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Good morning, Freehold. Congratulations to the Atlanta Braves. Um, what about that last well, I mean, night? They, they were, well, they played a game last week. The Mets didn't play. They lost, lost a half game. Played a game last night that the Mets did play. Excuse me, the Mets didn't play again. They won that game. So now we head into the um, the final eight games of the season with the Atlanta Braves one game behind the New York Mets. Bryce Elder, complete mm-hmm. game, and Olson And Olson hits one, you know. Yep. I mean, you, you need to get him back hitting the ball. Hey, I'll, I'm going to you with numbers today. I mean, today's going to be a lot about numbers. Um, you'll hear me say underwater, you know, um, in favor of the percentages of. I mean, we're going to talk a lot about numbers. I'm going to go back to yesterday real quick. Um, we talked a lot about the sports weekend. We talked about Goodyear and NASCAR. Um, Goodyear had a bad day. <laughs> they may have a good year, but they had a bad day in um, in Texas Motor Speedway. And then we had um, Albert Pujols. We had the Braves, Gamecocks, Tigers. The one sports accomplishment that we didn't speak of was the retirement of Roger Federer. I don't know how many tennis fans we have out there, but we've had this three-headed monster that has controlled tennis. Um, Jokovic. Federer and Nadal have been probably the greatest three players of this. I mean, obviously of this generation, maybe of all time, playing simultaneously uh, the game of tennis. Now, now I don't. You know, tennis is probably not as mainstream as baseball, basketball, football. It would be as mainstream as NASCAR. I'm sure, probably more mainstream than NASCAR. Tennis and golf. What's more mainstream? Is golf more mainstream or is tennis more mainstream? <laughs> Let me ask you this. Is the U.S. golf tournament a bigger deal than the U.S. Open tennis tournament? Is Wimbledon a bigger deal than the Open Championship? Hmm. I mean, well, it's, it's, well, it's, if you compare the Masters to the Open. Well, I mean, what, what's the biggest golf tournament in the world? The Open Championship? I say Masters. Well, I mean, but you're an American. Right, I mean, you're in a neighboring of state. Course. But I mean, the, you glo- can argue, though. Globally. I mean, I've heard it said that globally, the Open Championship, yeah. because it is the the birthplace of golf, sure. it's the old country, old, and all. I yeah. mean, obviously for you and I, it'd be the Masters, no question about right. it. But it's two hours down the road. You know, there's a there's a True. southernism That's kind of at home. It is. Right. I mean, there, there's a southernism associated with the Masters. Now, now, once again, I think you could easily argue that the Masters is the premier golf uh, sp- golf related sporting event in all of the world. Um, but but for the for the globe, the, the Open Championship is still you know. I mean, would, it, would a new it, player in the PGA would they would their goal be to play the Masters or the Open? I, I would more? argue it depends on where you're from. Probably so. You know, if, I mean, if you're a um, if you're someone from Scotland, it would probably be the Open yeah. Championship. If you're Bubba, you know, from a, <laughs> you know Bubba probably wanted to win the the Masters all of his life. Um, I mean, they, they're rivals of one another. Yeah. I think we would agree to that. They're rivals of one another. Wimbledon and the Open Championship. The U.S. Open Tennis Tournament and the U.S. Open Golf Tournament. Um, and Roger Federer was number one in the world for 237 consecutive weeks. That's pretty crazy to be the number one ranked player in the world at your sport for 237 consecutive weeks. I think his number one ranking was over 300 weeks, but it was 237 weeks um, consecutively. And he played in a, in a doubles match and um, that was his last competitive tennis tournament event. Now, he'll play in exhibitions and some of these fundraising and charity events around the world. Um, you know, I don't know much about tennis other than when I was a young person, Bjorn Borg and John McEnroe were kind of the rival that defined 
you know, my youth as a um, as a sports fan, but but never a tennis connoisseur. Um, but Borg and McEnroe, uh, it's, they, they don't have the the wins that Nadal, Federer, and and Djokovic have. So one of the big three is hanging it up for good. But here's where I want to head, and I want to start here because we're going to talk a lot about numbers today. I mean, I'm going to bore you with number, confuse you with numbers. What is the most important, Yana, you ready here? What is the most important number to you in all of your sports fandom? I mean, we talked yesterday about 755 and 714. Cy Young won 511 baseball games. Uh, Baseball is kind of a more, I mean, it's a numeric-centered game. You know, we talk a lot about, uh, when when you think of Ted Williams, you think of 56 games. When you think of um, Henry Aaron, you think of 755. Babe Ruth, you think of, of 714. Ted Williams... You think of, you know, 406 or 56. You know, you know where I'm headed. Um, how many wins did Greg Maddox have? How many wins did Rod? It's, it's a numerically, I don't know, it's a game that it, we get hung up on the numbers mm-hmm. of baseball. What is the most important number in all of um, sports? I mean, as a NASCAR wow. fan, 212-809. It's a weird number, right? It is. That's the fastest lap in NASCAR history. Um, Chase Elliott's father, Bill Elliott, drove at Talladega before they had the restrictor plates. So as a NASCAR fan, 212-809 wow. is kind of a holy number out there. Um, cool. As a baseball fan, 56, you know, the um, the 56-game hitting streak. Was it Ted? I don't think it was, it was Ted Williams, right? No, it was Joe DiMaggio. DiMaggio had the 56-game hitting streak. Ted Williams is the last hitter to bet 400. I want to make sure I get that straight. Right. DiMaggio, 56 games. Ted Williams, 406, if I'm not mistaken. Um is there a football equivalent? Is there a basketball? I mean, somebody said yesterday that Oscar Robinson averaged a triple-double. He did. Um, double figures in points, rebounds, and assists per game in an NBA season. What is the most sacred, single, numeric statistic in all of sports? Ooh. I mean, if you're a tennis fan, I mean, if you're a tennis guru or a tennis junkie, 237 would be a big deal. I mean, if you walk up to tennis fans and say, hey, what number matters to you more than any any number in sports? 237? Well, that's stupid. <laughs> 237? He said, yeah, that's the number of weeks that Roger Federer consecutively played, you know, at number one in the world. You, you see what I mean? I mean mm-hmm. it, it, that's all subjective. Yep. I mean, it's like, is CCR the greatest American rock and roll band ever? <laughs> you know, I don't know if they are or not. They're I mean, not. I, you know, They're not. If you pay me 100 bucks to argue they are, I'll do it. Pay me 100 bucks <laughs> to argue they aren't, I'll do it. And I think I could convince you or do us convincing a job on one side of that debate or another. But what is the what is the most important number? I could almost say, what is the most important number to you in all of sports? 843-661-0937. That's not the show, but I was thinking about it last about night. As we, yeah, yesterday afternoon as we considered these numbers and what they meant. Um, and once again, I didn't know how many home runs Barry Barnes had. I mean, Barry Bonds is the home run king in all of baseball. And I had to look it up. And I did ask somebody else in the office who follows uh, statistics and numbers very closely, and he knew it. He knew 762. Okay, he knew 762. So you didn't, and I didn't. Exactly. But I knew 755, and I knew 714, and I knew that Albert Pujols is the fourth hitter in the history of Major League Baseball to hit 700 home runs. I mean, we're going to talk a lot about GDP and Republicans and Democrats and, you know, favorability on the economy and favorability on inflation. Uh, but but I just, as we as we begin the show, the show will be a lot about numbers today. I mean, I'm going to really drive you insane by inundating you with number after number, stat after stat. 
um, polling data after polling data. Frio wants to jump in here. Oh, I just had a really quick question. Okay. So um, with Aaron Judge, where he is right now, if he gets to 62, 63, whatever, um, do we consider him the all-time home run king? I for do. A single season? Well, I, okay. I do. I mean, if if yeah. he breaks Maris's record in the next week or so, I consider him the single-season home run king. Yeah. I mean, I do. Because, I, I mean, I've got – and I understand the debate on Bonds. You know, I understand some say, well, I mean, he did it, but everybody was doing it. You know, but he did it. And it was a, you know, it was a, it was a performance-enhancing drug. I mean, it made him a better hitter. It made him a better home run hitter, uh, without question. Bonds was going to be a Hall of Fame player whether he takes steroids or not. I mean, he was that good a baseball player, but he was not going to hit 762 home runs. I mean, Bonds would have hit, what, 425 or 50-ish, somewhere thereabout. I mean, he was going to be – he was a talented baseball player. He was on his way to a Hall of Fame baseball career, but he chose to do something that made him stronger, bigger, faster, and turned him into a home run hitting machine, um, much like Mark McGuire. The reason Bonds hit more home runs than McGuire is just a better baseball player. I mean, from top to bottom, from start to finish, Barry Bonds was a better baseball player than Mark McGuire, uh, more athletic abilities than Mark McGuire. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I think if Judge, for example, if Judge hits another two home runs before the end of the season and ends up with 62, for me personally, can't speak for the masses, for me personally, he is a single-season home run king in all of Major League Baseball, passing Roger Maris. Let's go to the phone. Breeze joins us first thing this morning. Hey, Breeze. i tell you something about testosterone, Um When you're uh, getting if you're 30, 35 and older, you naturally start losing some of it. You talk about Barry Bonds. And, um, you know, in, in some ways, a 35-year-old, taking a couple hundred milligrams of tests, which is what normally they give doctors prescribed for people below T. It really just kind of halfway levels the playing field with a 21-year-old, if you want to know the truth, kid, because they just don't recover. You know, you're at the point in your life, and I am too, I don't, you couldn't take enough testosterone to really compete with the kids anymore. But that's not what I called about. You know, I just wanted to throw that in there real quick, but, uh, you know, I was sitting there thinking, I said, you know, here I have this, you know, I have what I am, and I believe if you gave me a couple of hours, I could come up with a sheet of paper to give to Herschel Walker that says, Herschel, these are the points you need to hit on. You don't need to mention that old uh, Donald Trump. I said, if they hit you with stuff like January 6th or stuff like that, here's your answer. And I just gave you, have you ever sat there and watched a guy and you're really hoping even Donald Trump, for instance, or whatever, you watch a guy and you say, man, I really was hoping he would hit harder and he'd bring up something that's a lot more relevant or more important. And I just never have understood Republicans at all because they, they just, they never daggle, they never daggle throw a punch to knock somebody out and they never shoot to kill. You know what I mean? They're, it's just, they're just too sissified. Makes me sick to my stomach. But, Another thing that you notice this lady in Italy, she um you know, she was you know, she's a daggone uh, proud to be she just wasn't a pre, pre proud minister. She's proud to be Italian, proud to be a mother, proud to be a woman, and proud to daggone uh, believe in God. And so what does the media do? Call her a neo fascist. Said we haven't had anybody like her in Italy since Mussolini. Forget about the fact that Italy about went bankrupt and everything, 
And so what do they call me and you? Anybody that daggone disagrees with them is a fascist. Anybody that daggone voted for Donald Trump is a fascist. But I would encourage everyone to read up on what really what fascism is. Now, the daggone, uh, the far, you know, the, the leftist, uh, the leftist communist fascists have redefined it to try to put it on us as this right wing, right wing, right wing. Well, maybe that is right wing, but the way we think is, we think less government. And in a fascist regime, yes, they usually have a dictator, but if you sit there and you try to compare Joe Biden to Donald Trump, regardless of what you may think of Trump as, a, as being a butthole or not, you got to look at who was that old uh, stopping all, who stops all the sit? The Democrat fascist party. Nobody can disagree with them or you get destroyed. Who dag old um, uh, worships at the altar of government? Who worships uh, who and God is their politics? Who does that? They do. So they are the fascists. Everything these guys call us, all you got to do is flip it over and say that's that's what they are. That goes right out of the communist playbook, by the way. You accuse the other guy of doing what you're doing to destroy the, the country. And I think every Republican out there needs to quit calling Democrats incompetent and call them what they are, destroyers. They're Democrat fascist destroyers trying to destroy a Democrat republic. I said, show me where Donald Trump is trying to destroy democracy, but I can show you a hundred ways in which they have. And all that. I just get back to what I'll say this. The boys need to learn how to fight. The girls, the Republican girls, they got twice the guts that these guys do. I'll I, I tell you, I'm, I'm sick of these sissy boys we got in the Republican Party. Thank you, Breeze. 843-661-0937. What is it, Georgia Milani, the um, the newly, newly elected prime minister of um, Italy, and a lot of her, I mean, I listened to Tucker, watched a little bit of Tucker last night between Braves and Cowboys and Giants and some sports going on. You know, this is a great time of the year for me, personally. Tuesday and Wednesday are the only nights without football, and normally you got some Braves baseball mm-hmm. on Tuesday and Wednesday. Yep. So I can actually look forward to something on television every night. Because if, if I'm not watching sports and Fox or MSNBC or CNN to try and get a different perspective, I mean, there's just nothing I find very interesting. I mean, I just don't. I mean, it's, it's almost like... Thank God for college football because I got a reason to watch some television or the NFL, a little bit of Braves. But um, other than that, there's just not. I mean, for, for me, and I'm mean, just me personally, there, there's nothing worth watching much on on television other than live sports. And you know, I, I just, because of the job, I have to try and engage in some of the um, somewhat the mainstream media saying about the political events. But um, I mean, this lady talked a lot about her faith, her family, her her national sovereignty. I mean, that was a big issue in her in her campaign. And I heard somebody yesterday pose the question, you know, should Italians decide who gets to live in Italy or not? Should Americans decide who gets to live in America or not? So some of the um, some of the liberal movements in governments all over the world, these globalists, uh, that they believe that, you know, the um, we, this big world order, you know, this this um, this open border policy in Europe, this open border policy in America, they'll never profess to be open borders. It's about equity and opportunity and diversity and inclusion. But, but the people of Italy have all of a sudden said, look, man, I mean, we want, this country belongs to the Italians. Yeah, let's put Italy first. Yeah, it doesn't belong to the, to the, you to know, the bureaucrats. It doesn't belong to the government officials. This country belongs to the Italians. And we're losing our sovereignty. We're losing our identity when we allow our country to be basically invaded 
by, by people who don't live here, aren't from here, have no interest in, in assimilating here. Sound familiar? And I think Larry nailed it last week when he said, you know, these liberals don't believe in this. They want you to believe in it. They won't enforce these values and views upon you. But the first time these people who profess to be so dedicated to inclusion, diversity, and opportunity, the first plane that shows up in Martha's Vineyards, they ship their ass off to an Air Force base somewhere at Cape Cod. You know, get out of here. Um, you know, go clean them up a little bit and bring them back with a weed eater and a lawnmower in their hand and we'll be perfectly fine with it. Tyrannical do-gooders. Guys, trust me here. I mean, it's not even 6.30 on, on a Tuesday morning. The, the, the Democrat, liberal, affluent, white, tyrannical do-gooder are the most dangerous species of human being on this planet, period. Second ain't close. The tyrannical do-gooder who is normally white, affluent, educated, uh, more times than not Northeasterner. Those people are the most dangerous hypocrites on the face of this planet we all inhabit together. Trust me on that. They, they, They like to impose conditions and prerequisites for how you live, but they have absolutely no interest on the averages. I mean, there are a few dedicates. Um, there are few that believe, you know, they drink the, excuse me, they walk the walk and talk the talk, talk the talk, walk the walk. Uh, but, but the majority of these folks are just simply do-gooders, tyrannical do-gooders. Why do I say tyrannical do-gooder? Because they impose, they, they n- not suggest that they absolutely demand that you accept their worldview while they fly off to Davos and escape some of those um, difficult realities that all of us have to um, kind of deal and deal with every single day. So today is Statistics Tuesday. And we're going to walk through some of the elections. We're going to talk a lot about the Federal Reserve. Um, Can you break it to a place where it can't be fixed? I mean, I watched a lot of Bloomberg last night. I watched a lot of CNBC late yesterday afternoon. I read a lot of the Financial Times yesterday. I've got in my hands here. So do you uh, feel better or worse? Oh, I feel much worse. Oh, gosh. I mean, much worse. I mean, it's done. Oh. I mean, you know, what the other side looks like, I don't have any idea. Rev, I'll say this, and then we'll take our first break, Freehold. In 2008, the housing sector caught everything else. Um, The housing sector was deathly ill, and it caused everything else to get sick. Everything else is deathly ill, and it's going to cause the housing sector to get sick. I mean, this this is an everything bubble. I mean, this is a debt bubble from public pension funds to private sector borrowing to Fortune 500 companies to mom and pop businesses uh, from the affluent who live in gated communities to the rank and file, you know, American who works at the bill and lives in a mobile home. I mean, th- this is going to touch every single one of us in, in a multitude of ways that we cannot even imagine. And, you know, I've got several questions that don't have answers to. Um Let's take a break and we'll come back and and delve into that because there are I mean, some of this gets real complicated and sophisticated. Um, not not I mean I I think I understand it, but I don't know that I can verbalize it. I mean I, th- I think I see exactly we're not that's unfair. I think I see in, in in general terms where we are and where I think we're headed, but it's real hard to articulate what you see and, and what you suspect is to come. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. The best description I heard yesterday in my readings and, and listening and viewing was the Fed or the arsonists and the firemen. But they built the fire that we're dealing with, and now we're depending on the the arsonists to become a fireman and out the fire. 
that we've um, that we built. I want to just kind of randomly go through this. Now, I don't know where I'm trying to end up. Bear with me for a second, and maybe there's somebody out there that could help me um, c- kind of work all of ourselves through this. If you're a 40-year-old person working in the financial sector today, this morning, it's one of the few mornings in your adult life in the world of finance that you have worked in a rising interest environment. I mean, stew on that for a second. I didn't say if you're 27. If you're 40 years old, odds are you've never worked in a rising interest rate environment. Now, now here's what I don't know, and here's where I kind of get myself real confused. I made some notes to myself this morning. When I watch some of the experts, and I'm talking about some of the uh, some of the CNBC gas and the Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, when I when I listen, when I hear, when they opine, all I hear is is these technical market valuations. The technicals say X. The technicals say Y. The technicals say um, Z. For most of our country's financial history, that there's been a fundamental market valuation. What is Apple Computer worth? What is General Motors worth? What is you know um, uh, what, what what give me give me a marginal company? I mean, what is GE worth? I mean, some of these companies have just blown the roof off their 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 market cap. Some of others have kind of struggled along, and some have done okay. Some of I mean, GE's had some issues, some real big issues. Some say it's poor leadership. I don't know. Uh, did they diversify too much and try to become too many things? To I mean, when they built refrigerators and stoves, they made a lot of money. Next thing I know, they got GE Capital, a finance arm. They've got a lot of other GE Real Estate, GE Finance. I mean, they, a lot of different things. Now, once again, I'm not privy to the internals of GE, so I don't have any idea what their problems were. But Wall Street frowned upon the, the evolution of General Electric. But but everybody I hear give an opinion under the age of, let's say, 50, give the opinion from a technical market perspective, the technicals of the market, the curves, the trajectories, the algorithms, the models. And it's almost like they have the, they, they lack the capacity to fundamentally value what a company or stock is worth. Now, now, once again, I'm being a bit judgmental and I'm getting out of my lane a touch, but but I think it's to inspire a conversation. Now, here's what I want to say, because you've heard me say, Rev, this has never been real money. I mean, you can take the money and go to the store and buy something, but I want to give an example. We, we began lowering rates in 2006 when we saw the impending housing fiasco of 2008. I mean, we saw it coming. It really started in 07, but in 06, we began seeing a declining of interest rates. The Fed began to aggressively and rapidly address what they saw were problems in the economy. Since 2006, since late 2006, if you are in the financial sector, you have given people advice on what to buy, what not to buy, how much to finance or not finance, um, how much to borrow or not borrow. You have given those people that advice based on roughly a 0% federal fund rate. That's unprecedented. There's never been anything remotely close to this. So here's what else has happened in that run from 06 to 22. I mean, that's 16 years, guys. I mean, you're 24 years old. You get out of college. You get out of Princeton. You go to work on Wall Street as a 24-year-old hotshot working at Goldman Sachs. From the age of 24 to the age of 40, every day you go to that office, Interest rates are roughly zero. The Fed is quantitative easing after quantitative easing. In other words, uh, prior to you becoming a 24-year employee at Wall Street, I mean, uh, Goldman Sachs, the Fed had printed about a trillion dollars. Since you've been there, 
the Fed has printed about sixteen trillion, well, about fourteen trillion dollars. Their balance sheet today is about nine trillion dollars. It's been pretty easy to end up on the good side of business when those are uh, when those are the soil conditions which you're operating in and giving people advice. So I'll give you an example. The 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 S and P five hundred. Well, the Dow Jones Industrial Average has returned about nine point eight percent on average since its inception. So since we began investing in publicly traded companies, and I'm talking about teachers union pension funds and 401ks and individual investors, and I mean it, it comes from a lot of different places and a lot of different sorts and a lot of different amounts. But since you've been investing uh, since 2016, excuse me, since 2006. You have performed about 50% better than the market historically has. Now, now, once again, historically, the market returns about 9.8% annually on your investment. Since 2006, it's been about 15.4%. So you've, you've got roughly a 50% premium on your investment in the, in the stock market when the economy average 1.7% GDP growth. So, so the market's up 50%. The market's returning a premium of 15%, but the GDP's growing less than 2% uh, on, on average. I mean, there were a couple of quarters. It was 3.1, 3.9. Remember, after COVID, after the financial meltdown, I mean, everything went to crap in a handbasket, and, you know, you had a, a bit of a rebound. That quarter would be 5.7. But on average, it's less than 2% GDP growth since 2006. So, so why do we believe there's not a, a, a kind of, of a comeuppance. I mean, how do we believe? I mean, you got to believe that all the Fed's activism has inspired all that asset um, appreciation. I mean, there, there's nothing normal about that. I mean, normal's 9.8. But has there been any real consequence? I mean, for people that believe that was the right thing to do, it's just been, I mean, it's just been a party, right? Well, I mean, it's just been kicking the proverbial can. It's been, you know, I'm on the party bus, you're on the party bus, nobody's getting off the party bus. But to me, Rev, there's something different about where we are right now. This is what I want to I want to talk about. It seems to me that there is an acceptance amongst those who knew this couldn't go on forever, that this may be the end, that this may be the beginning mm-hmm. of the end. This may be the beginning of the unraveling of what we've done for the past 16 years. Now, why we did it, I don't have any idea. I mean, that's so far above my pay grade. Were Republicans complicit, Democrats complicit? I'm sure. I mean, Hank Paulson, you know, I mean, he was a, a Fed I mean, you see where I'm headed. I mean, it's the insiderism. I mean, it's Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan and some of, some of the big financial firms on Wall Street um, gaining favor, you know, collabor- in cahoots, as we'd say in Pamplico, <laughs> with some of the government officials and bureau- bureaucratic agencies, the Fed in particular. Um, and and I, I just think we're beginning, or I'm beginning to sense now, I'm probably the last person you should ever listen to when it comes to giving financial advice, but I'm beginning to sense that there's a realization amongst those who knew this was a, a, a party that there's too few people and too much booze. I mean, that'd be the best way to say it. I mean, they, you know, expected a thousand people, a hundred show up, but the, the, the guy who delivered the booze delivered exactly the same booze and everybody there likes to drink a lot. So, so we have partaken at, at a level and in a way that I think we're going to deeply regret at some point in time. And I'm beginning to suspect that, that this will be a definitive period in our country's history when it came to are we or are we not going to try at least make a, an attempt to get a financial house back in order. Historically, the market has returned 9.8%. Historically, interest rates have been 5, 5.5%, 6%. 
all of a sudden in 06, when the world blows up, we decide to quantitative ease and suppress interest rates to zero. So, so once again, if you're someone 40 years old working in finance and you think you're a genius, you think you're just damn good at it. You know what I mean? Um, why did, why didn't people before me understand how to do this? Why do they accept a 9.8% annualized return over the last hundred years? I mean, they just must not have been as good as we are. No. I mean, they gave you basically a license to steal. I mean, not, not, I'm not saying I mean, nobody's done anything illegally here, but, but when you really reflect and try to understand what the Fed was thinking in 2006, now, once again, I can understand the reaction of 2006, but they left it there and they left it there and they left it there. When the world blew up in 2007, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was 6,000. It has been as high as 36,000. So here's the question I'll ask, and I don't know how to answer this. Uh, Larry asked yesterday, how much money is the right amount of money? Uh, all I know is it's too much now. <laughs> you know, I don't know what the right amount is, but it's too much out there now. What would, what should we expect the correction to be? Now, now I'm not arguing that the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the S&P 500, or the Russell Index, I'm not arguing those are, absolutely reflective of the state of the economy. But there's some correlation there. Historically, there's been some correlation, and we've got to get back to that correlation. We've got to get back to where a good economic report leads to a, a, you know, an appreciation of the market. And now, Rev, we've got it inverted. A good economic report creates a sell-off in the market because the people in charge believe the Fed's less likely to intervene, less likely to do something to help aid and assist the capital markets. So good jobs report the market sells off. Why does the market sells off? sell off? Because the good jobs report is not as good for the market as what the Fed may do had we got a bad jobs report. So there's been an inversion, and we've normalized that inversion, and it can't be reality. We've got to connect ourselves. We've got to get back to some semblance of reality in, um, in managing the affairs of the economy. And I went back and looked again last night. I mean, I've got political affiliation to Federal Reserve economist. And I want to go through this because I think this is very telling and it's very interesting. If we believe the Fed, I mean, I, you know, I'd argue that the Fed is the most dangerous group of what seven hundred and uh, nearly eight hundred people in the world. I mean, I, I really believe that. I think the Federal Reserve in America today, the eight hundred people that are employed there, uh, over seven hundred are economists. I believe they're the most dangerous people in the world. They have unbelievable. We talk about self-declaring yourself masters of the universe. I mean, these folks are pretty much masters they of the universe. They actually are. I mean, they are. They, they control monetary policy. Uh, they, they regulate and, and try and set inflation at a certain number. They buy government debt or not. They, they, um, you know, they buy mortgage-backed securities or not. They, they do a lot of things that you never imagine that the Fed should and would do. And I get, we, you know, I understand the frustration with crime. And I understand the frustration with, you know, the, uh, the, the unfair media, the way they're reporting on some of these midterm races. I get all that. But, but I'm telling you guys that, that every other story in America right now today, this morning, pales in comparison to this story about trying to attack inflation and what it may or may not do to the, the biggest economy in the history of mankind. And I think it's been a house of cards. I think the house of cards is being exposed as we speak. And, and I'll say this, if the Fed is committed to getting us back on a track of normal I don't want to say normalcy. Who knows what normal is in financial affairs? But but if we are to get back in some semblance of managing properly 
the affairs of this country, it is going to have a devastating effect on our economy, mm. a devastating effect on the investment side of our economy, a devastating effect on the housing sector, a devastating effect on job creators, a devastating effect on borrowing or loaning money. I mean, it, it just, there's just going to be a complete total reset. Once again, 07, a lot of us say, is when the world blew up. Well, it didn't blow up because we're still here. On the uh, if we make the dra- if we take the drastic measures that I think are necessary to get ourselves on a path to sustainability, oh seven as uh, Buford T. Justice said, ain't baby crap. <laughs> up alongside what I think it takes to get us back to a uh, a more tranquil and sane place of managing our economy. Eight four three six six one. Have a nice day. Well, I mean, I'm just wow. It, there, there's nothing well. to like out there. That there's nothing out there. That there's no data point. That there's no um, nugget of information that that should lead anybody to believe there's a reason to be encouraged. I mean, that there's nothing to be encouraged mm. about. We, we have. I mean, the the, the Fed once again. I mean, whoever said this yesterday nailed it. The Fed was the arsonist, and now they're trying to be the fireman. And I don't know how you do both. I mean, they're trying, and I get it. I mean, the Fed. All the Fed can do is raise rates. And they could quantitative tight. I mean, they, they can take some of the, the liquidity out of the economy. That's what they're doing, about $90 billion per month starting in September. It was $45 billion beginning in April or May. It's doubled to $90 billion. And I think the markets and the economy are going to have to just deal with it. And it seems to me the Fed has made the commitment. They're not going to put their foot, uh, they're not going to take their foot off of the brake pedal. Here's, here's, here's the question, and then we'll take our break. Are they trying to break the economy, B-R-A-K-E, or are they trying to break the economy, B-R-E-A-K? 843-661-0937. Take a break. <laughs> B-R-E-A-K. <laughs> right. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Joe in Hartsville. Good morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. And the, the amazing thing is, you know, you were talking earlier about that lady in Italy. What did she talk about? God, family, country. They hate that. That's why they call her a fascist. That's why they hate us. You know, when they shut down for COVID, what did they keep open? The liquor stores, the pot stores, and they closed down the churches. But this monetary garbage we got going on is going against everything I was taught when I was coming up. I mean, they they said never, ever take unsecured debt and secure it. I see all these commercials about your credit card. You owe your credit card interest rates too high. Get a, a, a refinance on your home loan and bring that credit card interest rate down. Well, that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. In 2006, when seven, when the markets hit about 6,000, I put up with it because I was, you know, I was getting close to retirement and actually I'd already retired twice, but I put up with it and I, I listened to all the advisors and everything and they said, we'll ride it out, it'll come back. And then it went to 19, and then Trump got elected, and it kind of took off, I mean, in spurts. And then they said, we got to 30,000, then it dropped to 23, 
And they said, well, hold on. It'll come back. It'll come back. And I didn't like it, but I said, okay, no problem. And then I see all this money they're injecting in the system. And when it hit 36000 you know how much blowback I got when I said, put it in a money market fund? They said, oh, you're going to lose money. At 36000 I didn't lose a dime. I put everything in a money market, which guarantees it a dollar a share anyway. So one of these bills they just passed, you were talking earlier about the pension funds. They plushed up all the all the union, all the state pension funds in the United States. South Carolina got some of that money too. So we we can't say that we're not part of this. Our our education system is almost like the rest of the nation. It's growing the administration state instead of the teacher state. I mean there's some places where you've got four degrees of separation between the principal and the teacher. I mean, four administrators in a department in a high school, that makes no sense whatsoever. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. Look, I understand the arguments. I mean, we've said this a million times. I understand some of these arguments, but, but nothing matters right now like the state of the economy, nothing. I mean, I understand love America, love God, love family, faith, and all these um, cliche political sayings. I mean, I believe it. I mean, I do believe that. I think national sovereignty is important. Nothing in America today matters more than what we have going on in restoring financial sanity or not. Back in a minute. Some of these segments about the Fed and the economy, I mean, they can get a bit teachy. And I'm not a teacher, nor a professor, nor a lecturer by any stretch of the imagination, but they can... Uh, they, they can get a little bit. Rev and I were talking about phone calls, and there's certain there are certain subjects that just the phone starts ringing off the hook one after the other. This is not one. I mean, this is not an issue we talk a lot about that draws a lot of attention via the, the telephone line because it, it gets real complicated. And I'm I mean, just it trying does. to grasp it. Myself. Well, you've asked me a couple of questions during the break. I don't have the answer to those questions. I mean, I really don't. And I think I've read enough to understand with some um, sophistication where we are, where I think we're headed. I think it's important that we revisit Who's making these decisions? Who made the decisions that led to where we are today? Did you? Did I? I mean, maybe you bought too much house. Maybe you bought too much car. Maybe you spent a little more money than you have. But that's not reflective of the general state of the national economy, right? I mean, maybe Freehold did a couple of dumb things in 18 and a dumb thing. I mean, we all have. I mean, I have spent too much money on a vacation, uh, you know, bought a car you shouldn't have bought, let the, the salesperson upgrade you, added a room on your home, moved to another neighbor. I mean, we've all been guilty of that. And there's no guilt. I mean, it's just a decision we make that we kind of balance in. Uh, is that the right thing for me to do or not? Is that the right thing for me to do on behalf of my family or not? We all make those economic decisions with, with, with the most clarity we can. We get it right sometimes. We get it wrong a lot of other times. But none of us dictate monetary policy. None of us control inflation. That is done by the Federal Reserve. Who exactly is the Fed? Someone asked me that yesterday. Hey, man, I heard you talking about the Fed. I mean, that, that's a government agency. I said, no, it's not really a government agency. It is supposed to operate independently of the government. And I think right now they are. Because you can bet somebody at the White House is begging the Fed <laughs> to take their foot off of the 
not the gas pedal, but the brake pedal here, trying to slow down the economy. Because, Red, the only chance we have to control inflation is to create a recession. I mean, the, the folks at CNBC can't say that. Bloomberg can't say that. But they know. If I know, rest assured, they know. The only chance we have is to put this economy in a deep recession if we're going to address inflation. There is no, there never was going to be a soft landing. That there was never transitory inflation. When you allow trillions of dollars to make its way into the economy unannounced, you're going to have inflation. I mean, it goes back to the, the simplest theory of the economy, supply and demand. When there's that much liquidity in an economy, it's, it's macroeconomic stimulus. It leads to inflationary pressures, which eventually leads to you and I becoming poor. I don't care how much you make, but it is going to lead to you and I becoming poor. Somebody asked me the other, or asked me yesterday, okay, if you're arguing that point, why is the dollar? Why is the dollar performing as it is? The dollar's performing as it is. A couple of things. The euro change, uh, in other words, you know, it's the... Um, it's the, the least dull city on the – it's not a shining city on the hill, but it's the least dull city. But another is some of these uh, – some of the currency markets believe for the first time in a long time that the Fed is serious about controlling inflation. And when you're serious about controlling inflation, good for the dollar, well, you're going to solidify right? the dollar, no doubt about it. I mean, if, if the speculators believe – and I'm talking about these guys that trade on the currency markets, and this is – uh, a lot of this technical trading, not fundamental trading, but technical trading more than anything. But when the currency traders believe that you're committed to addressing inflation, you're committed to slowing down the economy, you're, you're committed to you know making the money in your pocket at least as valuable as it was before we printed the trillions of dollars, then that, that's good in the long run for, for the dollar. Here's the question I pose, and it, it's kind of similar to what we talked about yesterday. You know, I don't know what the right amount of currency or liquidity is in the, in, the, in the American economy or the global economy. I couldn't begin to go down that road. I have no idea what that number is. I, I do know this is not the right number. I mean, it's obvious there's too much liquidity in the economy. But, but here's what I think we're trying to find out now. You're talking about short selling and long selling and, you know, should I invest or should I not invest? Uh, you, know, a, um, a, you know, a bear, what is it called? A, a, a you know, a uh, a blip in a bear market or one of these run-ups in a bear market. I mean, I said, where well, the futures are up about 100 points today. I mean, there could be some technical trading happening within a bear market. But here's the point I'm trying to make. If we, since 2006, have operated in roughly a 0% interest rate environment and the markets have performed, the Dow Jones Industrial Average for 100 years has averaged 9.8% um, average rate of return, annualized rate of return, and all of a sudden is doing 15% a year, um, go to the rule of 72. So in a 10% market with historical average, your money doubles every 7.2 years. Since 06, your money doubles every 4.8 years because the market is overperformed by 50%. Well, if it's overperformed by 50%, not because the economy has grown, but simply because of the Fed's activism, quantitative easing, and 0% interest rates, what is the real measure of the market? We're talking about a correction, you know, 15%, 18 20% means a bull market. You know, is there another 20% to the downside? I don't have any idea. But if you look at the historical averages, well, when the Fed is doing its normal thing, when the Fed is not pumping trillions of dollars of liquidity, when the Fed is not suppressing interest rates to zero and leaving them there, I mean, the Fed left zero interest rates in a growing economy, in a recovering economy. They never raised rates. They never stopped quantitative easing. So the point I'm trying to make, once again, I don't have any idea 
what the right amount of liquidity to have in the economy at a given moment or time is. That is so far above my pay grade, I'd be embarrassed to try and estimate what that number is. But, but when you look at the historical average, 100 years of investing, 9.8% annualized return, all of a sudden since 06, the economy really hadn't grown much. But as an investor, you have made 15% year to year or year over year. You got to believe there is a dramatic, a dramatic correction coming our way if the Fed is committed to controlling inflation. If the, com- if the Fed is committed to, to, to get us to a more sound and reasonable and sustainable monetary policy and, and a reasonable and historically averaged interest rate. To me, 30000 is just the beginning of the downturn. I mean, if, if you take that data and try to correlate it to where the Fed should be today, you're almost asking yourself, what would the Dow Jones be today had the Fed done what it always did? And, and, and I'm saying somewhere around eighteen, nineteen thousand. 19000 I mean, it looks to me like that's kind of somewhere in the neighborhood. That's another 10,000-point sell-off. How many 401ks? How many public and private pension plans? or hooked to um, the, the value of the market, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the S&P 500, the Russell Index. It's just, I mean, it, that's why I think this could have a devastating effect if, the, if, if some of the data, I mean, it, it's hard to correlate this data. I mean, it's real hard to say, well, I mean, eggs are eggs and biscuits are biscuits and bacon is bacon. I mean, sometimes bacon are eggs and sometimes eggs are, you, you see where I'm headed. I mean, it gets real confusing. And I'm telling you, the more I read about the Fed, the more confused I become. The more I read about monetary policy, the more confused you said, I become. You said if the Fed is committed. So is there some point they take the foot off the brake? I have no idea. I mean, the Fed could get spooked. Exactly. Let's say we have another 5,000-point sell-off in the next 30 days. I mean, will the Fed stay committed to get inflation under control? Don't have any idea. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD. Hey, Larry. Hey, good morning. I wanted to ask you if you remember this. Um, and I don't know how much of a difference it would have made, but I'll, I'll ask the question, could it have made a difference? I remember that Chairman Powell tried to raise rates during the Trump administration, and Donald Trump had a fit. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? I sure do. So here's my question. Is it possible that if he would have started it then, that maybe he could have, we could have had some transitory inflation, and maybe we could have had a soft landing? That was probably what – Two or three years ago, when uh, when he when he tried to make that move, and I think they did raise him once, like a quarter point, and then I mean, you know, all hell broke loose politically. So then my next question is: Is the reason that that Powell is able to get away with it today is because the leadership is really really weak, and they don't have the political horsepower to restrain the Fed right now? Uh, because we just don't have the kind of leader that will stand on his head for it. And is it maybe that the Democrats don't want this economy to do well right now? And why would that be? Because I feel like they could, you know, they could stuff enough uppers into Joe to chart them out and, you know, lecture the Fed if they didn't want this to happen. So my fear is not just that it's going to happen. It's that there's a group of people that want it to happen and why do they want it to happen? Larry, let me ask you a question. Could it be, I mean, you've offered a hypothetical, let me offer one. Could it be that the Fed has finally made a determination within 
that they must return to apolitical and, 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 and look at the data as the data is and admit that they've made big, big mistakes in the last 15, 16 years. And to get this country on a path forward, sustainable monetary policy and reasonable interest rates, they must inflict serious damage on. In other words, they believe for the first time in a long time that their reputation is at risk. They know that they are looked at as the arsonist and the fireman, and they've got to kind of look in the mirror and be honest with themselves. And for the first time in a long time, take a very apolitical look at this situation and, and admit what sort of mess we have and how drastic their measures have to be to make the correction. Could that be an alternative? I'll rephrase the question. You're asking me of 800 economists, 80% of which are Democrats, have all decided that they were wrong? No. They are afraid that somebody's going to crack the books open and find out that they're wrong. This is duck and cover. This, they're not doing anything out of an altruistic motive because they, they don't have it. Um, it would be my opinion that they're just trying to do something to keep prying eyes away from their balance sheet. Interesting. Thanks, Larry. Appreciate that. See, that's my concern. Now, now, I tend to agree with Larry, but the concern I have is, for the first time in a long time, the Fed is making decisions apolitically. I mean, they're not worried about what Trump said, what Biden said, what the chair of the judiciary said, or chair of the finance committee said. That they're, they're being objective about the mistakes they've made. I mean, they're not going to publicly say, hey, we were late to the dance. I mean, we really should have raised rates back in 07, excuse me, in 09, 10, 11, and 12 when we pumped all this liquidity in the economy, quantitative easing, uh, bond buybacks, you know, mortgage-backed securities we're purchasing at record rates. I mean, we made a lot of mistakes, and in the name of defending the integrity of the Fed, there's something, I mean, there's some things bigger than Jerome Powell. There's some things bigger than the governor of Philadelphia, governor, you know, I'm talking about the Fed governor of New York, and we've got to, in this moment in time, make the right moves. Now, now once again, I believe Larry's right. But, but, but something inside of me questions whether the Fed is for the first time in a long time doing something sincerely in the country's best interest, knowing that they've got to drive us off into the financial abyss right now to save its reputation, its future involvement in whatever scenario presents itself, whether it's another pandemic or another financial meltdown. They, they don't have much of a reputation left with, with the majority of Americans and they're trying to salvage the little bit they do. Now, I'm telling you, if they're making a decision apolitically, they're going to drive interest rates to probably, I mean, a mortgage rate is going to be 10%. I mean, a 30-year mortgage rate will be 10%. Mm-hmm. I mean, if they if they are honestly and truly uh, doing this apolitically without fear or consequence of what the politicians say, what the political fallout may or may not be, I, I predict that 30-year mortgage rates will be 10%. Um, we'll, we'll have $6 trillion less liquidity in the economy, and that's going to be devastating. I mean, that's going to be absolutely devastating. And I will say that, that if that is the case, the Dow Jones Industrial Average would peak at 36000 will probably be, be adjusted by 50%. I mean, it'll probably be somewhere in the neighborhood of eighteen, nineteen thousand. 19000 Now, once again, I don't know I'm right. I mean, I have no reason to believe I'm right. They've never suggested that they do things apolitically. What did Larry just say? When Trump started raising hell, when Obama started saying certain things, when Bush started doing certain things, I mean, the Fed recent history is, you know, we're, we're, we're not politically, uh, we're not a political organization, but we're very politically inclined, very politically in tune. Um, and Larry's right. I mean, I've got these political affiliations 
of the Fed. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, it, it really and truly is. But because the economists play a vital role at the Fed, I mean, it, there, there are a lot of economists there, and their, their priorities are, um, you know, producing research, conducting analysis that provide um, forecasting for the Federal Reserve System. Um, so, so I mean, that, that they they are the the biggest influencers of formulating, of executing U.S. monetary policy. And the overwhelming of these people, the overwhelming majority of these economists are, are either Keynesian or modern monetary theorists. No, but they just simply are. Um, I've got the data here. I mean, I can read it verbatim. Um, there are 416 economists working at the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve. There are 369 economists working at the regional Federal Reserve Banks. Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco has 32, Dallas 47, Philadelphia 77, Boston 36, uh, New York 69, Atlanta 49, Cleveland 59. I mean, there's 785 total economists working for what we'd call the Federal Reserve. The ratio of Democrats to Republicans amongst Fed economists is 10.4 to 1. I mean, they're, they're, 3.1 in Cleveland is the most conservative economist in a bank. Uh, San Francisco was 12.1 liberal economist. Um, if you're 40 years old or younger at the Fed, um, it's 20.33 to 1 registered Democrat voter. Female economist, 27.5 to 1. Now, now, this person who did this research, I mean, it's very extensive. Um, they excluded the economist at the Federal Reserve Banks of St. Louis, Kansas City, Minneapolis, Richmond, and Chicago, because those states, Missouri, Minnesota, Virginia, Illinois, either do not keep records of the party affiliations of their registered voters or are not allowed to share the records of governors of the Fed or economists that work with the Federal Reserve, as I'm entitled in some of the statutes. So I mean, this is an incredibly sophisticated and entailed um, research paper about, you know, the um, the political biases of economists who work at the Fed. There are five classifications for party class or party affiliation in this study. Democrat, Republican, no party affiliation, not registered, or libertarian. Take a wild guess. How many libertarians work at, how many li- registered libertarian <laughs> economists work at the Fed? Of the 700 and, what did I say, 795 or 785? It's 785. And you find uh, one. Of the, there's one. <laughs> one. There, there's one. He's in Cleveland. <laughs> there's one registered libertarian economist. And, um, so, uh, yeah, you can't blame this on the libertarian economist by any stretch of the imagination. But um, among those whose voter registration information is available, I just said some is not available, but among those whose voter registration is available, 200 and eight registered Democrat economists, 20 registered Republican economists at the Federal Reserve. Now, once again, that is the 469 economists who work at the uh, the Federal, excuse me, the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. 843-661. Making very consequential decisions I mean, they're, they're, yeah, I mean, economy. They're, they're doing the analysis and they're doing the, uh, the data collecting um, that that leads to the forecast models that the Fed bases its decisions on. I mean, when executing monetary policy, that's who they listen and to. You talked about how important and powerful the Fed is. Sure, but I mean, they are the masters of the universe. I mean, they are the godfathers. I mean, they, they are the 
th- th- they're the most powerful people on this planet. I mean, they, they're, you know, I mean, absolutely. I mean, because if the government appropriates debt and the Fed doesn't buy it and the public doesn't buy it, I mean, the government doesn't have any power, right? I mean, somebody's got to assume that role of responsibility of taking on that debt, and the Fed has always been a reliable source. Now, now and here's the scary part. I know we got to take a break, Freehold, but here's the, it's not the scary part. The right thing to do is the scary thing to do. The right thing to do is for the Fed to say, politics be damned. I mean, it's time we reinstitute ourselves as an honest broker and a fair arbiter of monetary policy in America. And if they have to undo all they've done in the last 16 years, it's going to be draconian. I mean, it's going to be devastating to this country's economy. Take a break. Back in a minute. Let's do this G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip for just a second. I've tried to play smart boy about, I mean, I've limited, I have limited capacity and I've extended the limit of my abilities. Um, here's what, here's the argument I'm trying to make. The market, let's use the market as one measure. I mean, the market's not the only measure. I don't think the market is the most important measure. But for argument's sake, we understand the market because the market's worth something every day, Right. I mean, it closes at X. It closes at X minus. I mean, it's down yeah. 1.6% today. Up or down. That's right. You I mean, get the reports, it's widely It's almost known. like the price of gasoline. I mean, it's on the sign every day. Yep. I mean, I don't know how good the economy is doing or not day by day, but we can measure the market by what it closes at, what it opens at, what its futures are, what's up, what's down, what sector's performing well, what sector's not performing real well. But if the Fed left interest rates at zero since 2006, and if the Fed infused about you know ten trillion dollars in liquidity in the economy, and that led the market to thirty six thousand, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, what would the market be if it hadn't had that ten trillion dollars and it had had to function under a a three and a half, four, four and a half, five percent Fed fund rate? I mean, that's kind of the point I'm I'm making. I think there's a great correction going on because the markets have lived, as the economy has, in la-la land. I mean, the housing market. I see today where lumber is back to pre-COVID levels. I mean, we had supply and demand issues and disruptions, and I get all that. I mean, I certainly understand that. But um, but, but the, the point I'm trying to make with the market, it's a definable number. I mean, there's a way to look on the sign and see what a gallon of gas costs today or tomorrow or the next day, Right. I mean, we know what it was last week. We know what it is this week. It's starting to go up a little bit in price because some of the refineries are converting to the, the winter blend, you know, the winter oil that burns and, and, and people heat their home in the Northeast and things like that. But, um, but, but the only reason I'm concentrating on the market, because I, I'll argue that the market is not directly correlated with how good the economy is doing or not, but, but you can measure it day by day, week by week, month by month. It's down 6%. This month, it's up 12% since last month. If the market went from 6,000 in 2007 to 36,000 in 2021, how much of that does it owe to 0% interest rates and $10 trillion of infused liquidity? I don't know. But but you can't convince me that it's not a big number. Historically, the Dow Jones has done 9.8% annually. Since 2006, it's done 15%. I mean, is this generation of investors just that much better? Is this generation of businesses just that much more efficient? No. I mean, it was propped up. It was aided and assisted. To to what tune? I don't know. It looks to me like 5% because historically it's done, I'm talking about 5% annually, because historically it's done 10%. You can say, well, that's not that big a deal. That's a huge deal. I mean, when you apply the rule of 72, 
at um at 10% annualized return, it takes you 7.2 years to double your money. So $100,000 in investment turns into $200,000 in a 10% uh, market. Well, when you when you appreciate 10%, you make 10% on your money. Every 7.2 years, your money doubles. In a 15% market, it doubles every 4.8 years. So obviously, if you're an investor or if you're someone who does the investing, I mean, if you're in the financial sector, you love 0% interest. You love quantitative easing because it makes your job a whole lot easier. As my father liked to say, when business was good, I can't get out of the way of money. And, and Wall Street has had a, an amazing run, probably as an amazing run as they've ever had in our nation's history. And was the economy growing at that rate? No, we know it wasn't. I mean, we know the economy hadn't grown much at all. I mean, the economy, I mean, we celebrate a 2% GDP quarterly growth, right? I mean, we jump up True. and down if we exceed 2%. We would have been embarrassed at 2% several years back. I mean, we, 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 will, I mean, we would have just lost our minds at only 2% GDP growth. But now... We celebrate that. Let's go to the phone. Here is Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Hey, Ken. You uh, you got a great show. It's certainly diverse. I started off with all those sports numbers. That just drove me off uh, off the deep end right at the beginning. But uh, it was it was really entertaining. The, uh, the but these things, I think. Uh, I think there's more than one thing going on here. Obviously, the the market's got to go up. It, it's it's got to be. It's got it's got to have a pretty uh, good floor. It's got to be have a tendency to rise. If you've got zero interest rates, what well, what crazy person would buy a bond? You know, and that, that's that's just. Uh, out of the question, but uh, I think I think they're just. Uh, I don't think this is altruism. I think they're they're thinking it's the right thing to generate enough more chaos. As far as Keynesian economics, I thought that was dead in, in 1976. I thought I thought the economists in uh, Geneva, Switzerland, uh, pretty much decided that it it was no go. And uh, they went ahead and uh, tried it for a few more years, and uh, darn if it didn't work. It's crashed every economy that's ever really been applied to all around the the world, all through the millennium. Uh, I think uh, Constantine, the Emperor Constantine, tried the, the equivalent shaving, the inflating the currency and that sort of thing. But they... I. I, I still believe that in these conspiracy theories that they're wanting to create as much of a problem and misery for the ordinary people as possible, and they really want to stomp out the middle class, whatever they need to do to to uh, do away with the middle class and to make everyone as miserable as possible. And if they can just uh, destroy any hope of Im- improving yourself, that seems to be uh, the plan. I could be wrong on that. I hope I am. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. See, I normally agree with that. I mean, I, I'm conspiratorial. I mean, I, it's, it's real easy to get me to go down that rabbit hole and believe there's something I'm missing here. Something tells me that they're admitting their mistakes. They're, they're beginning to look in the mirror and say, guys, we have, I mean, there's no wiggling off this hook. I don't know how long it'll take, but sooner or later, two plus two will equal four again. I mean, the Fed since 2006 has lived in a world where you kind of, you make up the math. 
you know, I mean, you, you got all these tools in your toolbox. You can you can quantitative ease. You can you can do all these creative things to lean. Excuse me to to um lend assistance to the economy. Economy struggles. Well, the Fed can do this. The economy struggles here. Well, the Fed can do that. We can lower interest rates. We do all these creative things. But there's an end to that game. There has to be an end to that game. Carl Icahn said it much better than I. Icahn is someone you should listen to. Icahn said five years ago, we're all on a party bus. We know the party bus is headed for the abyss. We know there's the proverbial cliff there. Are you getting off? I mean, am I, am I, getting, am I giving up 20% returns on my money? But because I think it's the right thing to do, because I'm more altruistic or less, you know, no. I mean, we, we all kind of played the game. And something tells me, I don't know why, but, but something instinctively is leading me to believe that there's a, a kind of a moment of coming to grips, that these people in charge are beginning to realize that it's, it, it may be broken beyond repair. And the only way to repair it is to be as aggressive as we can in correcting the mistakes we made. The Fed will never admit to being the arsonist. But they were. I mean, they, they're the reason we're in this position. They're lax monetary policy. Um, that they're, and I'm talking about monetary policy from, once again, the, the interest rate to the, the infusion of capital, liquidity into the economy. I mean, they, you know, they, they've got to know how responsible they are. Now, once again, if you're a true-believing modern monetary theorist, and I think that there's a little bit of this. So some of the liberals in America today have never had to defend modern monetary theory. I mean, it's been a theory. It's been an academic or scholarly exercise. You know, modern monetary theory is taught on campuses all over the country, but it's a bit harmless because it's only an academic exercise. The implementation of modern monetary theory would never reach the level of the Fed. Well, it did. I mean, it stopped being modern monetary theory at some point in time in the last 15, 20 years stopped being simply an academic exercise, and it became a part of our governing philosophy. It infiltrated the Fed. The, uh, of, the, of the 785 economists that work at the Fed, I would probably argue that, that 25 to 33% believe in modern monetary theory, that they believe there's no threat to fiat currency, and all of a sudden, we, we get to a point where fiat currency is printed after fiat currency is printed after fiat currency is printed. And basically, fiat currency means it's money created out of thin air with no correlation to a hard asset. I mean, there's, what's it worth? I don't know. I mean, we just printed it. Don't know. I mean, is, 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 it, um, is it hinged to a computer algorithm that says this much capital can be infused? Is it, you know, this much gold at Fort Knox? No, we just made it. I mean, we just made it up. But because, once again, it's our money. I mean, we control the currency. We control the supply and demand of currency, so it's ours. So, you know, we just we decided to print another trillion dollars. But, but modern monetary theory historically has been an academic exercise. Until we wake up one day and 25% of the economists at the Fed ascribe to the belief that there is no threat to modern monetary theory. As long as the government controls the currency, it can print as much as it chooses. Well, that's what we practiced. And all of a sudden, we have rampant inflation. We have the highest inflation measures in 40 years. In some sectors of the economy, the highest we've ever measured. So the non-modern modern monetary theorists at the Fed said, look, guys, we tried this stupid experiment of, you, of yours, and it didn't work. I mean, look at what we've got on our hands now. So, so see, that there's a little bit of me that says this is kind of a, um, a, a comeuppance for, for those at the Fed who are convinced that there's 
there's a reason to try this modern monetary theory. And Rev, here's the here's the pushback from the political body. The Democrats know that the only way they can win elections is to give people free stuff. And to give people, I mean, they can't run on crime, that they can't run on, you know, um, control of the economy. I mean, when you look at inflation in the economy, the Republican is plus 16 on inflation, plus 19 on the economy. We know nobody loves the Republicans. I mean, as, as bad as the Republicans are right now in America, I mean, as bad as the duopoly is in America today. The Republican Party is plus 16 on inflation over the Democrat, plus 19 on the economy on the Democrat. And the Democrat doesn't have an answer because all of a sudden the Democrat looks around and says, hey, you know, we could argue modern monetary theory because we never tried it. And it's easy to argue with something. I mean, you don't know if it'll work or not. We've never tried it. I mean, how are you going to chastise me for believing what I believe when we've never attempted to implement any of this in the way we govern ourselves? Well, we did. I mean, whether we called it modern monetary theory or not, we decided in 06 to begin down that road of allowing modern monetary theory to be a part of how we, um, uh, the, the monetary policy in our country, what was not hinged solely upon modern monetary theory, but, but they had a seat at the table. I mean, they were in the room when these decisions were being made and they were given advice and consent to some of the, uh, some of the Fed governors. And, um, and all of a sudden you wake up one day and you say, hey, guys, we tried modern monetary theory. Maybe we didn't call it that. I mean, when we appeared on CNBC, we never said, hey, we're going to try modern monetary theory for the next 15 years. We're going to print ridiculous amounts of money, uh, inject that money into the economy and leave interest rates at zero and just see how that works out. Well, I mean, here we are. We know exactly how it's worked out. We've got the highest measure of inflation in our nation's history. Many, many, many old school economists and business people saw this coming. I mean, we said three or four years ago, there will be rampant inflation. You can't print this much money and inject it into the economy, skew or distort supply and demand in that fashion and not believe that there's not a storm brewing. But we did it. And, and, and this then is... you poured gasoline sure on it with you COVID. And, and, and left interest rates at 0%. Yeah. I mean, you stopped production. I mean, that, here's what the, the fatal mistake... So, but that was a theory. Okay, so go back to 06 and 07. Well, and no, it, no. The, the point I'm trying to make is no longer a theory. It right. is a matter of practice now. Well, we, we, our monetary policy more reflects modern monetary theory than it does traditional capitalism. But my, my, my question was, it was 06, 07, 08. It was a response to an emergency, the housing crisis, right? Correct. So, you know, you can understand those, maybe those type of measures to counteract whatever was happening then to get us through an emergency. But they just kept it in place, and obviously everybody kind of liked I mean, it. <laughs> well, of course everybody liked it. Ooh, money. I mean, if you're on Wall Street, why wouldn't you like? But were the people arguing that there's there's no no problem with this, there's no ill effect to this, we just well, keep doing it and everybody's loving it? Well, I mean, the, the people that, I mean, who listens to you? Who listens to me? I mean, very few. Nobody. No, but, but, the, but the people who had the most at risk and the most, the most to gain, I mean, they were the ones that said nothing to see here. Look, guys, I don't care who you are. And, you know, if you're in the financial sector, you have a, you have benefited enormously on modern monetary theory. I mean, you can call it whatever you choose to call it. You can be opposed to modern monetary theory and be in the financial sector. But your life has been far more lucrative because the country decided to no longer call it a theory, but rather an exercise in governance. Take a break. 
Back in a minute. 843 I probably read 20 stories over the weekend about polling. You know, this polling company is worried about, you know, are we repeating 16 and, and even to some degree 20? Um, have we changed some of the, uh, I don't know, the way we gather data, the way we discern some of the data? I'm not a pollster. I'm a former political candidate. This, this midterm election is about two things. Either it's about the former president or the current president. If it's about the former president, the Republicans don't do as well. If it's about the current president, the Republicans will do exceedingly well. Ryan Schmelz is in our nation's capital. And Ryan, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning. Thank you so much for having me on. And it does look like that the Biden popularity number, or positive polling number in recent polls shows a lot of struggles. Yeah, we're talking about 39 percent. And this is a poll by The Washington Post and ABC News. And what's also interesting here is that just 35 percent of Democrats and Democrat leaning independents want President Biden to be the nominee in 2024, with 56 percent saying they want someone different as the nominee. Ryan, having said that, it, it's hard to, I mean, historically, the president's approval rating of the right track, wrong track number on where people believe the country is headed has been the dominant force. What are the Democrats trying to do to change the narrative when the leader of your party is polling less than 40 percent? Well, it's hard to know, because, but, uh, you know, yesterday at the, the White House press briefing, uh, Karine Jean-Pierre was kind of asked about this. And, you know, she's limited to what she can say about when it comes to his reelection and all that. But she, she obviously pointed to some of the policy, uh, which you could probably call legislative victories, like the Inflation Reduction Act, the American Rescue Plan, as well as some, some other bills like the Infrastructure Bill and the CHIPS Act. And she'll talk about how you know, in certain cases like the Inflation Reduction Act, no Republican voted for it uh, or, you know, it was some of the other ones were bipartisan with like minimal re- Republicans with less Republican support than Democrat support. So she, she finds ways to, to kind of point to leg- what she believes are legislative victories from the president. Uh, and that's kind of how they try to spin it ahead of the midterms. Do we expect to see President Biden on the campaign trail from now until November? Uh, I wouldn't be shocked if he's if he's out there a couple times. I, I would I would assume it's going to really start to ramp up as we get into October uh, and get down into crunch time. He's obviously made some campaign stops. Uh, you know, Pittsburgh's one of note, as well as uh, some places like Michigan. Uh, so so it's definitely a, a possibility we're going to see a lot more of President Biden on the campaign trail in the near future. Last question: We talked extensively this morning about some of the Fed's actions, some of the Wall Street news, CNBC, Bloomberg, Financial Times. And the Wall Street Journal, where I spent a lot of my time uh, in the last week or two trying to understand where I think the economy is headed, it does look dire. I mean, it looks like to me there's a rough um, set of circumstances that Biden and the Democrats will have to deal with between now and November. Do we have any idea what their strategy is? Because the famous Democrat James Carville once said, it's the economy stupid. Right. And and you could you could probably point to a lot of the strategies that they're hoping a lot of these bills that were passed, like the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, will start to, to, to show an effect and start to have an impact on the economy and start to lower prices. Uh, whether that does or doesn't do that, that, that remains to be seen. Um, and then also you have the infrastructure law that's passed. And you, you're expecting a lot of these projects to get started with uh, or if some of our already maybe even been started. So you expect to see those those pieces of legislation start to really start to have an impact. And I think that's what Democrats are leaning on uh, as we get closer. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate your time. Have a great day. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much. You know, when you look at the data, and I want to go through this, I said today would be a lot of numbers, and uh, I'll inundate you with uh, with numbers. Someone's texted me a second ago about, you know, 401ks, and I don't take any joy in this. I mean, I, you know, th- there's a bit of me, Rev asked a second ago, do you hope the Fed sticks to its guns? For the country's sake, I do. Because I believe a, a really, really bad year or two or three is in our country's best interest. There has to be an adjustment. There has to be a reset. That There has to be a uh, an acceptance of the mistakes we've made relating to monetary policy. You and I didn't make these mistakes. I mean, we took advantage of some of these mistakes. But if I were 65 years old and every uh, bit of money I had, you know, outside of my cash flow, my life and paying my bills were tied up in the uh, in the equity markets, I'd, I, yeah, I'd be real worried about it, deeply concerned about it. Uh, if I'm 25, then, then maybe not so much. I think the fundamental question you've got to ask yourself, or we have to ask ourselves, is it just different this time? I mean, we always say this is different than last time, but it hardly ever is. But in the same tone, we say nothing is forever. I mean, is this the one reset that reshapes America's financial future, that the investor's financial future, the retiree's financial future, I think there's a chance of it. I really do. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Real. Let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Do you think you understand? I mean, we we sit together every day, four days a an hour, five days a week, mm-hmm. and we spend a lot of time in the last what four or five years talking about the Fed. Do, do, do you understand the point I'm trying to make? I mean, sometimes I, I know. I mean, I I understand it clearly, but I'm not the audience. I think this is different. I mean, I I think this time the Fed has some resolve in admitting, um, I mean, Jerome Powell didn't make all these mistakes. I mean, it goes back to Greenspan and Yellen and some others. And political influence. A lot of political influence. Trump. I mean, Trump's the one that, you know, I mean, just went crazy. Why would you want to raise interest rates? But I'm I'm trying to follow what you're saying, and I don't know that I, I really grasp the details, but I think the overall um, feeling you're putting forward is that you know we've got a rough ride ahead of us. Well, I think we've and got I get a, that. Here's the here's the argument. There is no doubt we've got rough times coming. We asked for it. I mean, you didn't personally ask for it. I didn't personally ask for it. Dr. Will Bolt, history chair, Francis Marion University, is here with us. He didn't personally ask for it. <laughs> but but you know the um the relationship between Wall Street and the Fed, the government. There's kind of this three legged school. Stick with me here, Dr. Bolt. We're going to get right. your take on this from a historical perspective. Um, is this historically sound or not? So we've got this three-legged stool. It's an unofficial stool. Anybody can sit on the stool. I mean, it's not a, uh, a purple velvety stool. It's a stool at a barn. Anybody can sit. It's got three legs. One leg is the Fed. One leg is the government. And, and another leg is this, ah, I mean, I don't want to say it's Wall Street, but it's the business world. I mean, and they kind of enable one another. I mean, there's a relationship. There's a necessary relationship between the Fed and the government. There's a necessary relationship between government and the private sector. And then indirectly, the government, excuse me, the the Fed affects how commerce is transacted. I mean, the Fed doesn't go out to say, hey, um, we want this sector of the economy to do well and this to not. I mean, I don't think there's ever been any intent of that. But but the, the, the Fed... I mean, it manages, I mean, it, it, it executes monetary policy, but there are always political implications with that. You know why there are political implications? But because if the Fed decides to do something while a certain political party is in power, it looks like they are not being, you know, um, fair to that political party in power. 
Um, but, but I've always imagined that we get to a place where that relationship between the business sector, or the private sector, um, the government and the Fed would get to an enabling point. And I think the Fed, uh, somebody said it yesterday, and I think it's so well said, I've repeated it twice this morning. I think the Fed was the arsonist, and now they have to be the fireman. That's kind of weird. I mean, I'm not, I'm not defending it. I'm not, I mean, it's very weird. I mean, so, so the Fed in 206 decides to become an arsonist. And in the name of saving the national economy, you know, uh, the, the housing disaster and subprime lending and the financial meltdown and uh, the lack of liquidity. And I mean, we've heard the story after, you know, the, the, uh, the failure of Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers. And if one more domino falls, you know, you'll go to the money uh, ATM machine and won't be able to get your money out of the bank because that money you get out of the bank doesn't belong to that bank. You know where the, I mean, if you go to the bank today, if you go to ATM and get 20 bucks, you know where that 20 bucks comes from? The Fed. I mean, they, I mean all currency comes from the Fed. But why do they keep it? At 0% that, for that, the following 12 that's years. That's the arsonist part. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's where they were the arsonists. I don't have any I idea. Mean, they, they, they were the, I mean, the Fed governors were arguing that this is the best plan for our, this is the most stable, best plan for our economy. Well, I mean, either that or they saw some things that were worry, worrisome to them. I mean, they saw some fundamentals in the economy. And and they felt if they were to raise rates or stop quantitative easing. To, to get easy, back to, quote, normal, they'd I mean, wreck it. But here's the point I'm trying to make. I mean, if you, this is not a one-year episode. I mean, this is not a two or three. This is, if you're a 40-year-old working in finance, you have never gone to work at Goldman Sachs in a rising interest environment. I mean, in the last week or two or three, well, let's say the last month or two, for the first time in your adult life since 06, as a 40-year-old employee at Goldman Sachs, every moment of your um, work life as a financial uh, a member of the financial investment community, you've gone to work in a in a very, you know, almost a 0% interest rate world. And, you know, quantitative easing has ebbed and flowed, and at times we've tightened a little bit, but the majority of this has been, you know, hey, when you say the majority, it's been kind of an ebb and flow. Not much of an ebb and flow, because in 06, we had less than a trillion dollars on the balance sheet. Today, we've got about $9 trillion, and we've already taken about $3 trillion off the book. So it, it's gone from 1 to 12. We, we've, we've pumped about a trillion dollars of liquidity into the economy annually, that distorts reality. And here's the point I'm trying to make. Um, what is the proper value of our economy? What is the proper value? And once again, if this were a one year off, then I think we could say, yeah, but I mean, we, we had to do that for a year. We had to do that for a year or two. I get it. I mean, you know, we, we made we made major mistakes in, in, in home mortgages. And out of that came a financial disaster. And out of that came, you know, a reorganization. And the Fed had to intervene, okay, for a year or two. I mean, I don't, I don't like it, but I, I accept that as a fair debate. Um, should GM have failed? Should Ford have failed? Um, should we have let some of these, I mean, AIG, I mean, we bought AIG stock. We basically, I mean, we the people became shareholders in AIG. I mean, we took a pretty big position in AIG. So for a while, you and I owned, I mean, whether we liked it or not, we were owners of AIG stock. We repositioned or we formulated um, capitalism, but we did it for 16 years. We, we did it when the economy was growing, when there wasn't um, financial distress in the system, but it was easy. I mean, it was easy to wake up every day and go to work in finance, knowing that interest rates were zero, and, and the Fed was going to always be there to pump liquidity into the economy. And, and, and that's just, I mean, that's not acceptable. It's not normal. It's not, it's not rational. It's not practical. It can't sustain. And, and here we are 
And this is why I think the Fed is finally beginning to say enough of that. Enough of that. I mean, we're going to really and truly cause permanent damage to the most to the most powerful country in the history of mankind. And I think Powell has said, I'm not going to be that guy. I mean, you know, I'm not going to be that guy. I'm not going to be the guy that refuses to address what I know must be addressed. Is that altruistic? No. I think he's in legacy preservation mode. I mean, I think he looks back and says, I don't want them writing things about me, you know, in 50 or 60 years. I'd much rather them write things about, you know, about me like Volcker in the late 70s and early 80s when he accepted that inflation is so dangerous. Because, Rev, you and I aren't dramatically affected by whether Apple is a $2.5 trillion market cap or $2.1 trillion market cap. We are by the price of eggs. We Mm -hmm. are by the price of beef. And and I think that is the— the debt the Fed owes to the country is to control inflation, despite what Wall Street may want, or the financial sector may want. You got to get inflation under control, and the only way to get inflation under control is inflict enormous damage to the economy that that we all exist in. Doctor Bolt, let me jump in here. I mean, you're sure. not an economist, but, <laughs> no. but but what do you say about that? Well, I think the sort of like where we are with the Fed, it's almost. You see a similar path with the evolution of the Supreme Court, where it's a very, very modest power. And when the Fed was created in 1913, it was uh, created in the wake of, in the 19th century, every 15 to 20 years, you'd have an economic panic. You had one 18, 19, 37, 57, 73, 93, 1907. We create the Fed in 1913 to kind of make sure we're not going to have these bruising panics anymore. The Fed is asleep, asleep at the switch in 1929. You get the Great Depression and now, of course, coming out of World War II, look at how much power the Federal Reserve has. I mean, again, just can can tank the economy if it wants, can create a recession, can inflict pain and suffering on the people. Now, again, we saw it in 1979, starting under Volcker, just killed Jimmy Carter in his presidency. Uh, Reagan was good enough, had some smart guys to kind of navigate around it, and then won with ease in 84. But again, this do we want to bear this? And it's, it, it's it's sort of anticlimactic. It sort of goes against what we stand for. We're going to purposely create a recession. And a lot of us would say, well, we've exhausted. We don't have any more arrows in the quiver, no more bullets. But it looks like this is the only thing that's left to us. And if we don't do it, it's going to be a whole lot worse. But is it fair to say from a historical perspective that, that in economic cycles, recessions are necessary? I mean, right. they're a purging and a cleansing. I mean, capitalists make mistakes. I mean, businesses make mistakes. I mean, businesses businesses get complacent. They borrow too much sure. money. Their their widget declines in quality. I mean, they, and 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 we purge, we cleanse, we um we allow those businesses to fail. Yeah. And and well, survival the fittest. But but <laughs> in the past sixteen years, I would argue that instead of going through a couple of recessions, we've Very delayed. And and, yeah. and and so if you delay a couple of recessions. Isn't it expected that the one that eventually you have to accept is bigger than the two yeah. or three in the aggregate? Again, you will allude to it. Nobody wants to be in the White House or in, in a prominent position when it all comes crashing down. And certainly, uh, Andrew Jackson, going way, way back, saw there were lots of storm clouds on the, on the horizon. Jackson did a good job of kicking the can down the road. Uh, he leaves the presidency in 1837, two months later. There's a severe panic in 1837. And certainly President Trump doesn't want to be, uh, especially as he's gearing up for re-election, say, hey, let's increase interest rates, let's inflict 
a little bit of pain on the people, right? You know, I don't want people open up their 401ks in October 2020 as they're set to go to the ballot box and say, uh-oh, I've lost a whole bunch. So again, certainly politicians, you, and, and you can't blame them, but again, at some point, as you said, the rubber has to meet the road, and nobody wants to be that individual. Well said. Let's go to the phone. Uh, Rujan joins us on the line now. Hey, Rujan. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. I uh, just got a, a question for you guys, in particular, Dr. Bolt. Hey, I'm, I'm just kind of looking at it and making comparisons, historical comparisons. Can we say that the Fed is a economic uh, version of Tammany Hall? Because they're the kingmakers and they're the king breakers. So uh, that, that's what it kind of looks like to me. Rather, you know, not, not so much the corrupt side, and yes, I know the corrupt side, but, but, but they set the wheels in motion that can make or break a politician or an individual or a corporation. So we, we have to be careful because Tammany Hall was in effect of 1960s, 19, early 1970s, and they they really changed well, New York, but but they changed a lot of stuff uh, with the with the policies and the, the you know the, the way they did things. Thank you, Rube John. That's a, that's a good good comparison, probably. Again, and this is what lots of Americans have said over time. They say with the Supreme Court, nine unelected men and women having the final say. You don't, you don't get around the Supreme Court. is undemocratic. And if, if the Fed makes a decision that we don't like, well, what do we do? Where is the check on the Federal Reserve? And so, again, the, the chair is appointed by the president. It's to serve a four-year term. But, again, the, who's, who's, again, watching over the Fed? And you have someone like Rand Paul who will time and time again say, hey, let's open up the books. Let's see what's going on. And he hasn't gotten anywhere. Well, I mean, if you, if you think about it, Dr. Bolton just said something a second ago so, so astounding. A single man can lead this country into a recession yeah. by choice. I mean, Powell right. is basically <laughs> saying that. I mean, Powell is basically saying, uh, in Pamplico, we need to say it this way. Hey, we've had it too good for too long. I mean, it's time yeah. to pay the popper. And, and I am going to direct the Fed's policy, and the Fed's policy is going to put us in a recession. Uh, now, now we wonder how deep a recession is going to be. Sure. Here's how I know it's going to be bad. You ready? CNBC, Bloomberg, and the Wall Street Journal have all admitted we're heading to a recession. I mean, you got to you got to really drag these people kicking and screaming to believe <laughs> that's that. out of character. Yeah, I mean that, that's extremely out of character. Well, I mean it's not called the Main Street Journal, right? I mean it's called the Wall Street <laughs> Journal. I mean, you know, they know who they cater to and who they advocate on behalf of. I mean, it's not you know. Ken Dave and Dr. Bolt Journal. I mean, let's make sure, <laughs> hey, let's talk to Ard and, and, and Baker and Bolt to make sure they're cool with what yeah. with what we decide to do. No, it's called the Wall Street Journal for a reason uh, because they, I don't say carry the water on behalf of Wall Street, but they do a lot of the bidding and they, uh, they advocate for policy that is advantageous for people who have kind of built that business. But, but you know, Dr. Bolt says something so interesting. So Jerome Powell, has the power and authority to put this country in recession if he chooses, and how many of us have ever cast a ballot For in it, favor yeah. of Jerome Powell? That's I mean, that, that, I don't want to say the Fed is unaccountable, but they're independent. I mean, they're they're sure. completely and totally yeah. independent. I mean, I understand. With incredible power. I understand, you know, we debate whether they're apolitical at times and then politically motivated. Of course they are. I mean, how many, how many moments of your life do you live apolitical, and how many moments of your <laughs> life do you live with some political thought or bias? I mean, most of us are going to complicated or conflicted about about that but but jerome powell i would argue right now in america is far more powerful than president yes. biden i mean without masters question. of the universe well, I mean, you yeah. know they are the masters yeah. of the universe we Unchecked. joke around and say hey man these people think they're masters of the universe the central bankers truly are 
of the central bankers around the world. I'm going to go back to Dr. Bolt. So of, of the, the early American fit, when we had a debate in 1913 about whether or not to establish a, a central bank, you know, mm-hmm. a Federal Reserve, who were the, the loudest voices in support of and in defiance of? This was, it was a Woodrow Wilson and the Democratic Party. This was sort of the, one of the key founding things of the progressive movement. Again, this was just one of their, the big, they'd been talking about it for a while. A central we, bank. Right. And we're just, just to kind of rein in, thinking we're going to have a standard uniform currency, Federal Reserve, banknotes. But again, the overall purpose was to make sure you don't have these bruising panics anymore. Break glass in so, case of emergency. Yeah, good way to put it. And so the Federal Reserve was there to kind of funnel resources, channel funds. If there's maybe a problem out on the West Coast, we're going to move resources, shift resources over there. Then again, the Federal Reserve, early on, its first test, 1929, fails. Fails miserably. Uh, cannot stop the Great Depression. And, of course, the country survives, of course, World War II. But it has just becomes this incredible behemoth. And certainly was probably not what the uh, the men who were behind it, Carter, Glass, Carter and Glass-Steagall, uh, what these guys thought about just how much broad political economic power it has. Those who have the goal rule. Yes. And they have it. They have the goal. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Be back in just a minute. 843-661-0937. Word, a full full disclosure. Don't do anything with your retirement funds because I say so. Please, for God's sake. I mean, you're smarter than that. Um, Some of this is for entertainment purposes. The majority of it, I believe. I mean, I, I believe all of it, but I say things to try and be entertaining at times. But don't ever make a decision on what you should do about Glad your you retirement that. without consulting your <laughs> financial planner the crap out of me and, all day. And, and not me. I mean, I'm the last person in this world <laughs> that you should trust with your financial future. Consult your accountant or tax advisor. But, but I'm telling you, it ain't going to be pretty. I'm sure of that. Mm-hmm. Let's go to the phone. Scott in Florence. Good morning, Scott. You're on the air. Good morning, David. How are you? Hey, Scott. How are you? Hello, you guys do a great job, and thank you so much. I love the Pamplico Maxims, so you should write a book and uh, title it that. Um, I've been listening for a long time, but just moved to Florence, and I I listened to your debate, and Dr. Bolt is outstanding. I have to admit, it sounds like the late 1780s, and it sounds like Hamilton v. Jefferson, Mm. and I think Hamilton's bust or profile is the – uh, uh, symbol of the Bank of New York. Um, and I think uh, uh, Jefferson battled tooth and nail to not centralize power. And I think the Fed has is part of the mechanism that we've put such faith in the federal Leviathan. Thank you. Appreciate that. Very well thought out call. Very uh, proficient in his, um, in his comments. Uh, Dr. Bolt, there's no doubt that a part of the Hamiltonian and Jeffersonian debate was central planning, central government being a sure. big part of that. There's a famous scene in the miniseries John Adams when they're proposing the idea or notion of a central bank. Now, I know Superman doesn't fly, and this is an HBO documentary, but but we got to believe there was some conversation similar to this that happened behind the scenes when, when Hamilton proposes sure. some of these central banking ideas, and Jefferson talks about you know, a Virginia farmer and a London stock jock and all these other <laughs> sorts of things. I mean, there was a very contested debate early yeah. in our country's history about whether or not we should have uh, a, a central bank. bank or a national bank. Well, Hamilton obviously thought yes. Uh, Hamilton wanted the United States to follow the example of Great Britain. Wants us to be an industrialized nation. 
What accounted for a lot of the economic growth? Why did Great Britain have this incredible empire? And Hamilton says, hey, look, they have a Bank of England. This is what helps to regulate and manage their finances. It stands to reason that we should have a national bank as well. And most Americans had a very, very dim view of banks. And the common saying, many American farmers would say, I'd rather be caught in a house of ill repute than I'd be caught in a bank. Because, of course, in the, the lean times of the 1780s, the banks had squeezed people, taken their businesses, taken their farms. So, again, most Americans didn't really think a bank was a necessity. Hamilton did. He was able to persuade enough guys in Congress. And then when Jefferson said, well, it's, it's, you, don't even, you don't have the power under the Constitution, well, Hamilton said, well, we've got the power to regulate trade. We've got the power to coin money. So a bank, which allows us to carry out those powers, passes constitutional muster. So this is where you have the first example of a broad or a loose interpretation of the Constitution. How did Jefferson argue against a central bank? I mean, it's obvious the way Hamilton argued for. How did Jefferson argue against a central and Jefferson bank? Realized, Jefferson starts to connect the dots, right? We're, we've got this new nation, and if we have this bank that Hamilton wants, it's just going to increase the size of the national government. It's going to tie the government now to the economy. And certainly Jefferson didn't want that. But again, it's also a constitutional argument. And Jefferson realized if Hamilton can kind of ram this through under these sort of like these backdoor ways, if you will, what's to stop the government from tomorrow doing something else? So again, Jefferson said Congress doesn't have the power to charter a national bank. And Hamilton said, of course not. We don't. But by extension, and we can coin money, regulate trade, pass all laws which are necessary and proper. So therefore, it's legal. And again, it came down to Washington, who had a good relationship with Hamilton, and Washington says, all right, this is good, and signs it into law. So what caused the financial panic of 1792? Well, again, early on, things were, this was the new nation, things where we were just trying to get get our feet together. And again, there's a lot of sorting out going on at this time. And again, things kind of worked out after that. Uh, you had a pretty good, st- uh, stable economy uh, until right after the War of 1812. Then you had just a bruising panic in 1819. But again, for nearly two decades, again, just a good flush times throughout most of the country. And again, this is where you start to see this this cyclical nature. Every 15 to 20 years, there's a hiccup. And others would say, well, every 15 to 20 years, you get a new set of suckers who think they can game plan and beat the system. You know, there's still a, um, the Jeffersonian, the, the, the modern Jeffersonian refers to the central bank or the Federal Reserve as the bank that Hamilton built. I mean, we talk about Yankee Stadium, the house that Ruth built. You know, um, it's kind of an interesting, but I mean, it really and truly, I think the caller's right. The majority of these debates, in some way, shape, or form, go back to Hamilton Jefferson. It's a continuation. But it it really is. It doesn't matter where you end up in today's political discourse. It, it has fingerprints of Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton, uh, and I, and you know as as much of a Hamilton, excuse me, as much as a of a Jeffersonian as I am, Hamilton had quite the intriguing personal story. Not a person of privilege. No, um, no, he worked he worked his way up, and this is the the great testament of the United States. Someone like a George Washington would have only risen to the rank of major in the British Army. He didn't have the right connections. Hamilton was a bastard, orphaned at an early age certainly wouldn't have been able to rise up in British society, even though he had these dynamic, incredible views on banking and finance. Nobody would have paid him any attention. But here in America, look what happens. Washington, President Hamilton gives us American capitalism. We still thank him to this but day. But what is the irony? I want, to get, I want to get into this. What is the irony of Jefferson being an elitist? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no question about it. I mean, Jefferson would have been a modern-day aristocrat. 
Sure. But but his views were that of the common man. I mean, his political yeah. pronouncements were that well, of, well, good, of good the communist. Common. Okay, but, but but stick with me for a second. You would expect a kind of an inversion. To, you would expect yeah. Jefferson to be in support of a central bank and the elitist model of government and, and Hamilton to be the guy that, because he was not a wealthy person. He was not no. a privileged kid. He did not come from a, um, a preferred status. D- do we make anything? Is there any irony in there? And what do we make of that irony that Hamilton advocated for things that have led to more of an elitist model of government, while yeah. Jefferson, the consummate <laughs> elitist and aristocrat, um, sure. argued on behalf of the, the farmer and the commoner. Again, there's lot, been lots of other guys like that. And Hamilton, of course, was a good hard worker. I mean, Hamilton... Really he, bright man. Yeah, sure. Extremely smart. He becomes secretary... Washington picks him to be secretary of the Treasury on September 11th, 1789. Ironically enough, all days. He's appointed the same day. The Senate confirms him. It's a Friday. And most of us, all right, I've got a new job. It's a Friday afternoon. I'm going home. I'm going to start on Monday. Hamilton started that afternoon and worked all through the weekend. I mean, few guys could match Hamilton's work ethic for sure. And, of course, Hamilton made some investments, and there was always these charges that Jefferson said. He's using the knowledge that he has. Hamilton married well into the Schuyler family. And Hamilton, again, realized if the new government is going to succeed, you got to tie the the merchants, the wealthy guys to it. They have to have some skin in the game. They've got to have a stake in it because if they don't, there's no reason for them to support this government. And again, Jefferson Wright uh, tried to depict himself as the man of the people. Andrew Jackson kind of followed in that same thing. Franklin Roosevelt. I mean, the guys on Wall Street. I mean, FDR was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. The guys on Wall Street called FDR a traitor to his class because the New Deal policies of FDR were designed to help out your poor rural farmers, your industrial workers. So again, there have been lots of guys who've been able to kind of navigate and whose policies you would think, oh, this is going to be a guy who's going to help out Wall Street. But no, they're more interested in Main Street. Did Hamilton argue that the reason he wanted a central bank, Jefferson didn't buy it, and I don't buy it, but did he <laughs> argue that it was to finance the Revolutionary War debt? Again, we had just assumed a massive, incredible debt. Uh, the debt just about doubled. Hamilton had the national government assume all of the debts of the states. And of course, he needs Jefferson to go along. And maybe you know the story. Uh, Hamilton doesn't have the votes in Congress. And at the same time, they're debating, where should we move the Capitol? And so Hamilton, of course, the famous story of a dinner party with Hamilton, Jefferson, and Madison, they agree. I will give you votes for your funding scheme. We'll let you assume your the national scheme. debt. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's then, what they refer to it as, yeah, the funding mm-hmm. scheme. And we're gonna, you can move the Capitol. And Hamilton got the better. I mean, Jefferson, to his dying day, regretted this deal. Once Hamilton has the debt, you need taxes. You're right. You need when people resist the taxes, you need a standing army. Then when you start to criticize the standing army, the government passes a sedition act telling you you can't criticize the government. And Jefferson says, if you can't criticize the government, you've ceased to be a free and an independent citizen. So again, Jefferson, all everything that happened considered it all to be fruit of the poisonous tree, and he regretted it. Worst mistake he ever made, he said. No, but what did they agree on? What did Jefferson and Hamilton agree on? I mean, they were liberty lovers. I mean, they both, <laughs> sure they they the, both despised the king yeah, and taxation without representation. But what did what other sorts of things about America's future did they, I mean, it, amicable <laughs> or not? I mean, what, 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 what things were they civil about? Well, the silence is, is deafening, right? There, there, there wasn't much, and the story is, <laughs> The first time they meet, and it's perhaps apocryphal, they're waiting to see Washington in New York City. And so they, they'd never met, and so they're waiting outside, and there's a group of paintings around the wall, all these great thinkers of the Enlightenment, Newton, Voltaire, Rousseau, 
these great, great thinkers. Uh, and Hamilton looks up to kind of break the ice and says, wow, these are all some great men. But you know who's missing? And Jefferson, the the nerd, the you know, the great, the great thing. Oh my God, who else is should should be up here? And Hamilton says, we need a portrait of Julius Caesar. And Jefferson right then and there said, uh-oh, if, if your hero is Julius Caesar, I'm going to have to keep keep close tabs on you. So it was a bad first impression between the two guys. And then Jefferson, excuse me, Hamilton dies in the duel in what year? 1804, July 11th, 1804. He's wounded in New Jersey. And by some accounts, his last words were, don't let me die in New Jersey. Sorry. <laughs> so they, they row him back to New York, and that's where he that's where he died. And they were rivals. I mean, they never had any sort of reconciliation. I mean, they, they, they were not enemies, but political rivals until yeah. the, until Hamilton's last breath. Right. The, the one thing that Hamilton did do to kind of maybe ease things up is when the election of 1800 gets bogged down in the House and a lot of Federalists, Hamilton's party, were supporting Aaron Burr. And so after 35 ballots... And things are getting so bad that James Monroe, the governor of Virginia, and the governor of Pennsylvania are mobilizing their militias uh, to try and end this stalemate and make sure that Jefferson wins over Burr. It's Alexander Hamilton who tells his Federalist friends, hey, the devil we know in Jefferson is better than this Burr guy. This Burr guy is slippery. He has no principles. Trust me, go for Jefferson. And it's Hamilton that allows Jefferson to win Finally, in 1801. Okay, here's always been my question to that. I'm familiar with that story. Here's the question I have. <laughs> Great story. Yeah. Did that lead to the duel? Well, what happens is Burr is naturally upset. Because Burr, Burr sided, I mean, he was, he, was, he was a political foe of Jefferson. Yeah. I mean, you all know about the Jeffersonian-Hamiltonian debate. <laughs> but but he basically bails Jefferson out. Sure. Because, once again, he did think Jefferson was a moral man and a smart man and a man that was up for the task of governance. I mean, sure. he, he did really no, understand that. Burr was a very shrewd politician. Burr delivered New York State, and Burr got a whole bunch of old revolutionary guys to come out and run just to kind of bolster the ticket. And so Burr didn't, never came out and said, I want to be president when there was the tie, but he never accused himself either. And Burr realized, hey, man, Jefferson's going to serve eight years. His friend James Madison is going to serve the next eight they like this James Monroe guy in Virginia, too. I'm looking at 24 years before I get a bite at the apple. I might as well take my shot. So, again, he never recused himself. That annoyed Jefferson. And so Hamilton steps in. And then when Burr runs for governor in 1804, Hamilton campaigns against him. And he loses that one. He loses that one bad. They start saying lots of bad things about one another. Uh, Hamilton writes some letters, and he says, Aaron Burr, uh, he's deflowered virgins, uh, fleeced his legal clients. And so Burr says to him, I request the presence of an interview. And that's code word for, I've challenged you to a duel. And that would have been what year again? That was July of 1804. And so, yeah, that's when Hamilton takes one for the team. That's that's a crazy story in American politics, but a, <laughs> a true story about two of the central figures. And and, and Hamilton was how old when he, when he passed away? He was away? still, what was he, very late 40s, yeah, or early right. 50s. I mean, still had a long career, but he couldn't pass up the challenge sure he'd look like a coward he was in the new york militia nobody would follow him into a battle if he said no i'm not going to risk my life and most duels were amicably resolved right and in fact when they arrived on the most dueling duels grounds, were amicably <laughs> well they walked resolved. up they shook hands hey how you doing how are the wife and kids you got any stock tips i'm going to shoot you in a few seconds but <laughs> and they go back and hamilton throws away his shot burr doesn't andrew jackson when he fights his duels he doesn't walk up and shake your hand now he gives you the double bird, right? And it says, all right, let's get it on. 
And so that's how Jackson did his. So um, <laughs> political conflict and controversy is not a new science there you go. In, in America. Thank you, Dr. Bolt. Good stuff. Thanks, Good to guys. see you. Appreciate you having here. Hey, he's not wearing his um, Bill's jersey today. He wore that. his Bills jerseys proudly last week, but not wearing his Bills jerseys. Did something happen I don't know about, Rev? Mm. Every Buffalo Bill player looked like he was dying of <laughs> cardiac arrest. They were playing in Miami, and it was 100 degrees, 110 yep. on the field. Brutal. And the Bills players were just not acclimated, shall we say, to the hot yep. Miami weather. Well, again, what's the old uh, saying that revenge is a dish best served cold? Yeah. Miami plays Buffalo December 18th. And it's very cold yeah. in Buffalo. It in won't December. be 100, I can assure you, in mid to late December in Buffalo. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Take a guys. break. Back in just a minute. You know, when you go back to this debate about what the Fed should or should not do, I mean, I, I look at it as kind of a no-win situation. I mean, it's almost like a game of chicken. One driver's driving toward the other, and neither swerve. They run head-on and both die. I mean, I'm not equating financial distress or disaster to the loss of life. But it seems to me that in this particular scenario, I mean, if in, in order for the Fed to win, I mean, if, if you, let's say it's a competition and you got the markets against the Fed, in order for the Fed to win, the markets have to crash, right? In order for the markets to win, they've got to basically force the Fed to blink, to believe that things are going to get so bad, you're not going to believe all the economic hardship and damage you're going to bring about by this, you know, insistence that we get back to some... um monetary reality and and i mean who wins in that i mean to me nobody does because if the fed doesn't address inflation we all lose if the fed does address inflation and our 401ks turn into 201ks we all lose, we all lose. yeah so so yeah. there's really no winner here and that's what i tried to articulate earlier today it's not what i want to happen it's not what i wish would happen it's it's where we've gotten ourselves and what our options are and there really are no good options. I mean, they're honestly um, option A. Okay, let's say we follow option A to its fruition, and the Fed stays after it. And in its next meeting, 0.75, 75 basis points. At the next meeting, 50 basis points. At the next meeting, 25 basis points. And by the spring of next year, we're at, you know, a 4.5% federal fund rate. Home mortgages are 8.5%, 9%. The economy has had a significant uptick in unemployment. Uh, the markets are back down to 24, 25,000. I mean, who wins in that? I mean, yeah, you win by the price of beef being cheaper because we've addressed inflation more aggressively than Wall Street ever imagined we would. But, but you know, the savings on the beef and the gas and the chicken and the eggs and all these other good things that we buy. I mean, how much did you give up in the value of your retirement or pension account? And um, I mean, I just think that's where we've gotten ourselves. I just think we've gotten ourselves where there are no good answers. What is the best of the least bad? That's kind of where I think we are. And when I listen to some of these folks talk, remember what I said earlier. If you're a 40-year-old employee of the financial sector, you've never gone to work without markets, excuse me, without the Fed fund rate being somewhere in the neighborhood of zero until the last, what, couple of months? several months where the Fed really began addressing inflation in a meaningful way. Um, th- this has nothing to do with the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, if, if the Fed had any confidence in the Inflation Reduction Act, the, the Fed, see, the Fed is so dismissive of what politics says and what politicians do. I mean, if the Fed, you got to believe that somebody at the Fed evaluated the Inflation Reduction Act and said, this is nothing but a green energy bill. 
I mean, this is a green energy bill that has nothing to do with reducing inflation. And because of that, we're going to have to really get aggressive in. Um, what? Why what, am I just finding this out now? What I mean, what, what it is we do or, or don't do. I'll tell you what's going to be kind of interesting to me is watching uh, Senator Manchin, you know, try to convince Republicans. He's going to make it look like Republicans are, are, are as liberal as Bernie Sanders because they don't want to streamline some of the permitting and um, expedite some of the processes of um, gaining permits to drill for energy or explore for energy in the fossil fuel sector. But Manchin basically got hoodwinked. I mean, he got, you know, taken advantage of by the Democrats. I mean, he basically traded his vote for the Inflation Reduction Act that does nothing about reducing inflation, and that's why the Fed are taking their measures. But in exchange, I guess Schumer convinced him that he could line up the Democrats and they could get this permitting bill through and now McConnell said yesterday that he's not for the bill. And whether you like McConnell or not, he's still the majority leader. And when he says things, uh, his caucus will probably support that decision. We can debate whether he ought to be the caucus leader or not, or the minority leader, but he is. And when the minority leader says, I'm not supporting Manchin's bill, I mean, the bill's going to fail, and Joe Manchin is going to look to me like a doofus. You know, just a complete and total moron for going along with the Inflation Reduction Act believing for a second that Bernie Sanders, it's kind of interesting. Manchin didn't say that, of course, Bernie's a no on permitting. Of course, Elizabeth Warren's a no on permitting for fossil fuel. Why did he say that before we made the Inflation Reduction Act law of the land? It's been another roughly trillion dollars that did what? Added more to the inflation number. I mean, the absurdity of how we govern, and maybe, you know, maybe I'm way off base here, but something tells me the Fed is going to be apolitical for once in a long time. Take a break. Back in a minute. Yeah, we explained yesterday, I have two lives. So, I mean, I have a lot of different lives, but my two lives as it relates to hurricanes are pre-Hugo. I paid no attention to anybody when they said anything about a hurricane. And then post-Hugo, if I hear the word European model <laughs> or American model or, or, you know, spaghettis or noodle or whatever, it's <laughs> like, well, I'm freaking out. I mean, tell me exactly what <laughs> I need to know. Model. We do have um, a report, not confirmation, we have a report that the University of South Carolina's football game Saturday at noon against South Carolina State has been rescheduled for Thursday night at 7 o'clock. That's from some sources that I'm fairly close to at the university. There will be a press conference at 9.30 this morning to explain further. Rev's kind of bobbling around, wondering about you know radio and affiliates and their obligations yeah. and whatnot. But um, the weather is beginning to impact. We had a lot of high school games change, but... um. The University of South Carolina's game against SC State, ESPN, or SCC Network, was noon on Saturday, now 7 o'clock Thursday night. Once again, that is a sourced report, not confirmed. We'll know for sure, we think, somewhere around 9.30. So here the hurricane comes, and we begin shuffling matters around relating to um, our lives and athletics and football in particular. Uh, Andrew Dockery of WMBF is with us. Andrew, good morning. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. How about yourself? We are doing well, except the hurricane's on the way, and that's always a disruptive um, issue in our lives. Um, what can we expect, Andrew? I mean, do we have any more clarity yesterday, today than we did yesterday about the projected path? Uh, a whole lot more clarity has happened over the past 24 hours, and I think this clarity will help kind of ease the mind a little bit. So the track's going to be working through. Uh, landfall right now looks to be Tampa. And uh, let me just tell you, Tampa is going to be in a very dangerous, they're calling life-threatening 
um, situation on all fronts. Now, thankfully, because of what we like to call the wind shear, upper-level winds and dry air, this storm will weaken out pretty quickly. However, uh, if you remember the cold front that maybe moved through and dropped temperatures throughout this week, um, it will come back into our area as a stationary front. And while that's important is because just because this is weakening with the combination of that front, uh, this is just going to set up to be a nasty Friday and Saturday. Now, to help ease the mind, it's not going to be, you know, hurricane force winds. We're not calling for anything like that. Even most of us will stay below tropical storm force, which is great. Um, right now, the forecast calling for roughly 30 to 40 mile per hour wind gusts and the rainfall totals ranging from three inches as you worked up closer to the I-95 corridor as high as five inches up there for the inland areas. And then, of course, I think uh, where the higher totals will be, we'll, we'll be there for the beach where we're talking uh, anywhere from four to six inches at this time. Andrew, that, that front, that shearing effect you're talking about that makes it weaker, but it does cause the storm to move slower and, and, and rain becomes a bigger problem. Flooding becomes a bigger issue. I, I'm a layperson. I'm not a meteorologist. But, but as we shear the storm, do we slow it down and it kind of stalls out and, and dumps more rain than we would normally get? So the answer is yes. Thankfully, the stalling out process won't be for us. Um, the stalling out process at this point looks to be for Tampa. Um, in our region, we think of this happening with Hurricane Florence. They're looking at a very similar situation there where now they're talking about this storm barely moving for 24 to 36 hours. And that's what's going to, A, weaken that storm. But by the time it gets to us, the timetable hasn't really changed. This just grows in nature. And these hurricanes do, as they weaken, they become so much larger. So we're going to be looking at a larger storm. It's going to be weaker but because it is larger, it's going to take some time to get through here and get out of here. Uh, rainfall should start sometime early Friday morning. And let me tell you, Friday is going to be just nasty. We're talking heavy rain at times, winds of 30 to 40 miles per hour. And that rain will continue basically all day Friday, all night Friday as well. We'll get a couple breaks in there. And then right now, the difference, the thing we're not for sure on is Saturday's rain. One model has all the heavy rain coming through Friday, showing some breaks in there Saturday at times. Another model says, forget about that. This thing's going to rain until Sunday morning. And that's what we're trying to figure out at this point. Is is there going to be dry time uh, for those Saturday plants? And Andrew, we would have a better idea of the likelihood or not, scenario A, scenario B, by Thursday, somewhere there. I, mean, yeah. I know as we get closer, the accuracy gets a little bit better. Oh, 100%. And I would say, honestly, uh, I would give us another round of data coming in this afternoon, this evening, even by tomorrow morning. I think we're going to feel pretty comfortable. But at this point, it's just nice to tell people, you know, we're not expecting hurricane-related winds. We're not even expecting that much of tropical storm force. It's just going to be one of those days where you're like, is it still pouring out there? And uh, between that and the wind just cranking up, it's just it's just not ideal, and that's why you said it. You're seeing a lot of people, I think, start to move those plans toward Thursday night or even postpone them to another week later. Last question. We're always dealing with storms making uh, kind of land on the coast of South Carolina. This is different coming along the um, the Gulf Coast of Florida. Is it going to be nicer? This is a weird way to ask it, but the only way I know to. Is the weather potentially nicer along the coast 
than it is in some of the inland locations, Florence, Columbia, to be considered? I think we're in a mixed bag there when that question comes, because I get exactly what you're saying. I think for Friday, the weather is just downright nasty for everybody. I don't think you can avoid it. I think the only difference is inland areas will see the onstart of that rain a little bit later, so two to three hours later um, from the beaches. Now, Saturday, with that low pressure, it looks like it's just on and off showers the further inland you go. The steady rainfall, if we were to have some Saturday, I do think lines up along the beaches. So this is one of those weird scenarios where, for once, I think the beaches are going to get a little bit more rainfall, hence why our rainfall totals are a little bit higher there. Um, And then by Saturday, off and on showers, more cloud cover, just breezy uh, for those areas inland. Andrew, thank you very much, and we'll probably check with you periodically through the week as it progresses. Thanks a lot for being there for us. Of course, anytime. Y'all have a good day. Do the same. Andrew Dockery, meteorologist, WMBF, our television partner in these um, in these endeavors that we collaborate with with that form of media. But it, it's kind of an interesting. I just got word from two or three folks. Nah, I want to say, you know, they're, they're not super fans, but these guys are insiders at the university, and they know we host this show, and they want to engage, you know, the Gamecock Nation to let them know as soon as possible. Here's the dilemma. Clemson is hosting game day. I mean, it's a big deal in Tiger Town. I mean, it's a real big deal. I mean, anytime game day comes to your campus, I mean, you want to highlight your campus. You want to uh, show how loud and proud you can be as Tiger Nation. And, um, you know, the, the, the concern or the uncertainty around, you know, what happens with ESPN, whether they come or not, whether Clemson tries to change their game or not, um, you know, the track of the storm. And Columbia is in the center of the state. So it's probably a little bit more exposed to some of the likelihood of bad weather. But if you're up in the upstate, if you're Clemson, uh, when do you start calculating or making decisions? Or do you get to make the decision? I mean, does ESPN say, you know, we're not going to put our people in uh, in, in the path of a hurricane or a potential hurricane, and, and they have to pre-plan. I mean, they don't wake up Saturday morning saying, hey, Clemson looks like a cool place to go and set up. <laughs> Let's do that. I mean, you know, there's a lot of planning that goes into this. And I mean this sincerely. We had a little bit of a discussion early in the week about this. I mean, I mean this as sincere as I mean. I mean, I hope it doesn't screw up Clemson's game day. I mean, I, you know, all my buddies want to go and have a big time and and support their Tigers, and I hope they're able to pull it off. I mean, I hope we get some better weather. I hope Andrew tells us tomorrow or Jamie Arnold tells us tomorrow that, you know, the the likelihood of having big rain on Saturday is is lessened and um, and Clemson can have their game day celebration. Uh, play NC State, lose to the Wolfpack, um, that would be a perfect day for me. I mean, I want them to have all the fun you can right. imagine, and I want them to highlight their university and their football team and, and all that that goes along, but then I want NC State to beat them <laughs> in the football game. Nothing personal. Rest assured, That's it's nothing personal it with me. It's just the way it is. You said it better than I rev. 843-661-0937. To repeat, um, we have pretty good sources that have led us to believe there will be a press conference at around 9.30 this morning where the University of South Carolina will announce it's rescheduling the game. Noon kick on Saturday is now a 7 p.m. kick on Thursday night against South Carolina State. I mean, if, if South Carolina State's in Orangeburg, so there's not a big logistical nightmare here. Um, we've already had a, a number of high school games rescheduled for tomorrow and Thursday night. And you heard from Jamie yesterday and Andrew today that it looks like the weather will really begin deteriorating sometime during the day Friday 
Friday's a washout. Yeah, early Friday, Friday nights. Maybe even late night Thursday yeah, into early Friday morning. Friday night's a washout. Yep. And then you kind of keep your fingers crossed uh, for Saturday to see, I don't know, does it bob to the east or bob to the west? Does it speed up a little bit sooner than expected? Um, don't know. Um, these folks do know what the temperature of the planet Earth will be in 100 years, <laughs> but they don't know exactly where this hurricane is going to be, uh, you, you know, 48 again. hours from now. Well, I mean, it's modeling. Yeah. Right? Well, I, I mean, it's I'm all about you. modeling. I'm with you. Uh, the, the, the models say that the planet will be one-tenth of one degree warmer, and the ocean will be four inches higher 100 years from now. But but that same model can't tell me whether or not it's going to rain Saturday at noon. Um, put whatever faith you choose to put in those um in those models but that's that's exactly um i mean that's the truth i'm not exaggerating nor embellishing i want to um let's go to the phone i think we got a call then we'll go take our break i want to get to something here that um that mike rickenbaugh provided for me yesterday uh governor mcmaster i think he's in florence tonight um he's actually previewing some proposals he's making in relation to public safety I want to highlight some of these, and obviously we'll talk at great length about it Saturday morning. But let's, or excuse me, Friday morning. But let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Hi, David. Hey guys, uh, you know the Braves met with Joe Biden yesterday. Did you see that? I did. Yep. I'm telling you what, man. Uh, what do they call the team up in Washington? The Commanders, the Nationals. The Nationals. Oh yeah, the Nationals. Uh, I thought it was about a football team. Well, yeah, we're talking about the Braves now, but. But uh, they should call them either the feds or the globalists. And I'm thinking to myself, I said, you know, they beat them eight to nothing last night. And Olson, he hit the fair pole. And maybe old Joe Biden, he might have given them some energy and clarity pills or shot, whatever they do to get him hyped up. And uh, what did Dr. Bolt said? Don't let me die in New Jersey. Did I hear that? <laughs> and then he looked back at Freehold to make sure – uh, he didn't have a knife in his hand to stab him in the back. <laughs> now, 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 I'm going to bring this into this uh, this hurricane. All right, so now, now you got, you know, the Democrats, they run on this abortion, this attack on, uh, you know, women's rights, January 6th, uh, student loan, the climate change, one of their big deals. So, so you got people, they flee New Jersey for three reasons, crime, cold, and taxes. And they've moved down there to Florida, and Florida, to me, is known for hurricanes, uh, sinkholes, and humidity. So this is going to be their first chance to see a big hurricane. A lot of people, you you got to know this, this exodus from these northern states, and you got to watch this now because I'm watching this news today, monster storm barrels on Florida. And they're going to make this political, and they're going to they, they're going to test DeSantis, see how DeSantis responds. Even Marco Rubio, we think he's got that Senate race uh, in, in lock. I mean, think about Jim Hodges uh, back in the day. I mean, hurricanes can be political, and they're going to run this thing as big as they can. So this is these people that escaped from New Jersey. This is going to be the first big hurricane. See how they immediately respond to this. You have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. The language is interesting. I mean, I saw it start yesterday. Monster storm barrels. Deadly storm heads directly toward. I mean, the the language is so, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's just provocative. I mean, it's it's so sensational. Um, If you looked on CNN, let's do this real quick. Uh, 
cover me for a minute, Rev. Let me just get to CNN here. I don't real know why quick. you're going to CNN. Uh, to see how they're sensationalizing it. Let's see here real quick. CNN. Well, I do know that Jim Cantori from the Weather Channel showed up in Tampa yesterday. You know that's always bad Yeah, that's news. always a bad thing for you. He'll be there. Hurricane Ian pummels Cuba. Pummels. On its direct way to Florida. And I think it is uh, pummeling. That's probably that's accurate. Well, I, mean, I, yeah, I guess so, but that's what hurricanes do. Yeah. I mean, does anybody not think it's going to be rough if you're in the middle of a hurricane? Right. I mean, that's a given. We know. Um, yeah. Here, here you go again. CNN, you ready? Um, why Congress is on the brink of a shutdown again. Um, all along Florida's West Coast, officials are urging residents to get out of harm's way instead of trying to protect their property um deadly storm on the way there we go now we're more than eight million people reside in the hurricane warning zone in western central florida please um take notice um major florida theme parks and cruise ships watch ian's approach okay that's not quite as sensational See, I think, as i would i was as i would have expected i have little doubt that DeSantis will do just fine i think he, he will, is he very well the prepared as well as well, it can I mean, be managed he's been competent up until now Exactly. But it, if he's not, it'll be the first time he's not demonstrated a, yeah. a high degree of to competency. Me. And I think um, I think any time DeSantis has had an opportunity to shine and excel, he has absolutely um, taken advantage of that opportunity. I want to let's do this. I want to take a break. Come back. I want to touch on this. Uh, we'll have a very very lengthy conversation Friday with our delegation, weather permitting. Uh, you know the spaghetti noodles and, and the models. You know how their projections are. So yeah. The same people that say, I don't know exactly where this storm's going to be in 48 hours, but I do know exactly what the the surface temperature of the Atlantic Ocean will be in 100 years. I do know exactly how much the ocean will have risen or subsided in the next 200 years, and I do know exactly what the temperature of the planet Earth will be 150 years from now. And because I know that, we need to re rearrange your entire global economy right now. Drive that electric car. 843-661-0937. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. A lot of moving, a lot of, a lot of sporting events being moved around here uh, back and forth. Just takes a good Clemson buddy of mine who's kind of in the know at Tiger Town to see what he could find out about you know, whether or not there's going to be a discussion about changing or not. It seemed to me, talking to to Andrew Dockery, that Friday's a no-doubter. I mean, there's no question about it. Friday's going to be nasty and, and rainy, a little bit of wind, but more not. I mean, more rain than anything. When does it clear up? How intermittent is the rain on Saturday? Clemson has the advantage of playing the game late in the afternoon. I think it's a 7.30 uh, kick, so... Um, you know, that's in the upstate late in the day. There might be a chance uh, they can miss it here. And I think the, the, the interesting part of this storm is, or this rain event, not going to be a storm really, but it gets to us is going to be a big a rain event, but it's kind of coming through the back door, so to speak. The majority of, of hurricanes that we deal with, you know, kind of make their way up the eastern seaboard. They hit Florida. They hit Georgia. They hit, you know, the outer banks of North Carolina. They make direct hit on South Carolina, kind of a glancing blow, or sometimes they come inland. But th this is interesting. It's either, I mean, it could come, I mean, I've seen the cone, and it's somewhere between Atlanta all the way to the coast of South Carolina. Yeah. And, and I think what um, Andrew said is we know more today than we knew yesterday, but we'll really begin to sense tomorrow afternoon, of uh, you know, what kind of bobbling or what kind of speed and pace this will um, maintain. There, there's a lot of land and upper-level winds that can affect it before it gets here and hopefully weaken it. That's why it just becomes a 
a uh, wind and rain event. And, and a big rain event. So if you're a Tiger fan, I mean, you've played in the rain before. I think Notre Dame was kind of one of those games a couple of years back when it was a big rain event. But, I mean, game day being on your campus is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like 100 years ago, but there was a time when Steve Spurrier was at South Carolina that game day made a trek to Columbia. Um, yeah. And it's an exciting time to have. You know, you're kind of the epicenter of college football on that given Saturday, and I don't wish it a yell on my Tiger brethren. I mean, I mean that sincerely. I was looking forward to watching. Yeah, I mean, I wanted C State to win, but but I, you know, I hope you go there and have all the fun you can imagine, and and the weather cooperates, and um, you know, you shine a bright light on your university and football team, and and um, because they will. I mean, if given the opportunity, if game day is allowed to set up and do their thing on Saturday, Clemson will show well. I mean, they always do. They always will. That's what a passionate and successful football program does when given uh, the opportunity. Let's go to the phone. Here's Dan in Florence. Good morning, Dan. Hey, uh, Ken. Um, I uh, listened to you talk about the, about the hurricanes and um, just a couple of quick comments. Um, I, I'm, uh, you know, I hate to correct the caller, but, uh, you know, I got corrected the other day, and rightly so, when I said that Albert Pujols won the, won, won the Triple Crown. Turned out we were both wrong on that. But um, on hurricanes and New Jersey, uh, remember Hurricane Sand? Remember Hurricane Sandy in 2012? I do. And the the billions and billions of dollars it uh, of damage it caused in New Jersey, and New Jersey has a history of bad hurricanes. You can look it up. Uh, so that was a little that I wanted to correct that. And on and on hurricanes in general, they've hyped them all my life. I mean, I'm 75 years old, and every year it's the same exact comment. The only thing go, that they have now that they're harping on is all that global warming is supposed to be causing more hurricanes. And it turns out it's not. And if you know, this is the first one we've had this year. So they're desperate for a hurricane or their global warming argument falls apart even more. And uh, so it's uh, – but I agree with you 100%. They're going to hype this as much as they can. And, and I'll, I also agree with you that people need to pay attention when they tell you to get out of the way of them um, because you can, you, can get, you can get killed if you try to hang around hurricanes. So uh, in any event, I love your show. I love being able to call into it, and I hope you all have a great day. Thank you, Dan. We love you calling. We really do. Mm-hmm. And some of these disagreements are not spirited. They're not heated. Um, we, we argued whether – we didn't argue. We, um, we suggested that Pujols – hit for the triple crown, and he did not. It was, um, I mean, the big guy from Detroit, the big first baseman. I can't think of his name now because I'm not a big Detroit Tiger fan. But, I mean, he's a power hitter, drives it a bunch of runs, and hits for a real high average. And he's just a big old Cabrera. guy. Yeah, Cabrera. And um, he was the guy who hit for the grand, for the uh, the the triple crown. And, um, yeah, I mean, some of these, I mean, some of these mistakes, look, I make a lot of mistakes when I say things because I talk four hours, and the majority of what I talk about, I ad lib. I mean, I talk, I run my mouth and get paid for 20 hours a week. I mean, that, that's a luxury and a curse. I mean, it's a luxury that, I mean, it's cathartic for me. I mean, it, it, it allows me to vent and get these things off, off my chest that I'm frustrated about or bothered by or have an, have an opinion of. Um, that's very therapeutic. I mean, but four hours is a long what time. I mean, if, if no, Nobody ever would know it until they tried it. I mean, but, but to try to fill that amount of time and not misspeak occasionally 
is is well, but, pretty but you tough. and I almost instantaneously know when I got it wrong. You know, when I say something and I look at you and say that, that's not right, I mean I got to clean that up. I mean it, it's I got so much in here that I'm trying to get out there and sometimes I don't get it right. But um there's no shame in making a mistake. There's no shame in getting it wrong. It's interesting. I get to work this morning and I've got a note from Mike. Remember Mike called uh, a week or so ago and I made a joke, and it was simply to be a joke when when Mike challenged what Fred Smith said about FedEx. I mean, there's nothing personal with Mike or or, or anybody. I mean, whether you know uh, F- Pujols hit the, for the triple crown or not, <laughs> uh, some of these things you get right, some you don't. And um, but but anyway, it's kind of interesting mm-hmm. that that I get here this morning. And I met Mike when he came by, he came by to pick up a prize he had won. And he said, you're Dave. I said, yeah. He yeah. Said, hey, let me talk to you about it. He said, it's still on his mind. Sure. And I, and I and get he had it. A, he had a note written to you. And it says. Still um, disputing. But, and here's, here's what I did. Um, I heard Fred Smith say on Fox Business that at any given moment, on any given day, FedEx, and here's his words, our peer competitor UPS are in control or possession of 12% of our nation's GDP. Mike took exception with that. Mike called in and said, that's impossible. I don't know. I mean, I said over the air, that's a staggering number to me. But but what he's arguing is, and Mike's arguing from a different perspective, but then he, you know, and, and I think at the end of the next break, I try to be a bit of a smart butt, and I said, you know, man called Fred Smith a liar. <laughs> and that was done with entertainment in mind. I mean, I was not trying to provoke Mike, by any stretch of the imagination, I was just trying to be a little bit humorous there. And we, you know, we can't take ourselves, but so seriously. I mean, I try to not take myself, but so seriously as a host. I hope you don't take uh, yourself, but so seriously as a caller. I mean, there are certain situations we need to be more serious than other. I think we've got a serious problem with the Fed. I think we've got a serious problem with the economy. I think we've gotten ourselves to a place where there are no good options. There are no good answers. So what is the least damaging or devastating answer to that? But whether or not Pujols hit for the Triple Crown isn't a big deal. I mean, you know, one person said he did. The other said he didn't. Let's move on. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whether or not FedEx and UPS have 12% of the, the nation's GDP in their possession at any given moment, I mean, it's not like, you know, whether the Fed should do this or do that. The point I'm trying to make is Fred Smith is the founder and longtime CEO of FedEx. I can imagine Fred Smith coming on Fox Business without believing that somebody's going to validate what he said. Somebody's going to check behind Fred Smith to make sure he's telling the truth or not. And Fred Smith said that that we, along with our, once again, peer competitor, UPS, have in our possession 12% of the GDP. Now, now Mike looked at it in a different sort of way. He, he used a different mathematical as the, equation. As the math does or not famous. add up. But, but to me, the math, I mean, here's the way I look at the math. Let's, let's just say 10%. So if the, if the nation's GDP is worth $22 trillion, if, if, the, if the cumulative total of what our country's GDP is $22 trillion, and I think you looked it up last week, and that was the best guesstimate we yeah, found, then that means that at any given moment, UPS and FedEx have in their possession $2.3 or $4 trillion worth of uh, material goods. I mean, it's, they're in service business, but they, you know, they, they logistically transport goods and materials from point A to point B. I have no idea 
if that's a number. I mean, I don't have any idea, but but the way I look at it is in their pipeline. I mean, I've, I've almost made Rev watch this video about overnight shipping and, and what is going on when we're asleep. It's staggering. It was cool. I mean, it, it, it's cool, but it's, it's, it's staggering. The logistics and, and the and way if, they And if they're operating out. at a 97% success rate, it's hard to fathom how you could ship that much stuff to that many places from that many places and get 97% of it right. I mean, it really is. So what Smith is arguing, in, in my interpretation of his argument, is at any at the beginning of their, of their logistics supply chain to the end, conveyor belts, boats, trucks, trains, planes, containers, he's arguing that they, along with UPS, have $2.4 trillion worth of stuff in their possession. I have no idea if that's true or not. But that's the way I would calculate it. Mike looked at it in a different sort of way. But but when Mike, you know, when you use the word liar, you know what I mean? That That's kind of a, that's a colorful word. Um, he didn't tell the truth. He's a liar. You know, he didn't tell the truth sounds a lot more uh, acceptable than he's a liar. So when I came back on the air and said, man, called Fred Smith a liar. <laughs> I did it to be funny, but, but apparently, you know, some out there didn't find it very humorous, but we have established, and I think this is a credit and testament to you, the listener, and, and we, the host. We have established this relationship that we feel like we can say things like that to one another. We're, we're not a nationally syndicated show. We're not even a regional show. I guess to some degree we're a regional show in the Sumter, Orangeburg, PD markets, you know, but but we're we're not a dominant force in American political discourse. We have these very frank and open and honest and sincere conversations one with another every day the host does the majority of talking but that's the case in any show in any locale on any station about any issue but um but but it's just interesting that callers begin to take exception with what other callers say rev says that's the pinnacle of success i mean you, you've <laughs> always said it. that's when you know you're doing something right when a caller takes exception with what another caller may have said or not but it's not to be taken personal. None of this has ever been intended to be taken um, personal. In the course of 20 hours of spoken word radio, I'm going to say some things that don't come out exactly right. I'm never going to intentionally mislead. I'm never going to intentionally misspeak. But I'm sure there will be moments that you scratch your head and said, that can't be right. I mean, that can't make sense. Sometimes you're right. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. Sometimes I got it wrong, but there's never any intent to try and mislead our listeners about what conversations we're trying to have here. But when you talk a lot, <laughs> sometimes you don't get it exactly right. Let's go to the phone. Kevin in Effingham. Good morning, Kevin. Hey, how y'all doing this morning? Hey, Kevin, how are you? Uh, doing good. Uh, I just got an idea to just throw out there. I've always wondered about, but, uh, when we talk about uh, UPS and where well, you got FedEx, uh, what if we just uh, sold the uh, post office? Oh, I Took did. it private? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've often thought of that, Kevin. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've often wondered, would if we if we privatized the mail service, and let's say that we, we basically went to FedEx and UPS and say, hey, man, you guys have a real good track record of getting things where they're supposed to be. We're not as good at it. We're bureaucratic. We're we're kind of government funded. I mean, they're like the Fed. They're not really an organization of the government. 
but they're half pregnant with the government about all the time on every move. But what if we um, took the, the U.S. Postal Service and gave a portion of that or sold a portion of that to the, uh, the FedEx and then another portion to UPS and let them consume or assume responsibilities for getting more and more letters and product and good. I don't know how, how that would work out. Um, I tend to believe the private sector performs better when it comes to metrics and measures. Um, they'd be more on time. They would be, um, you know, probably a little bit cheap. What would a stamp cost? You know, if FedEx and UPS were in charge of delivering the mail, um, how much longer will we have snail mail? I mean, I guess we'll always have hard paper and copies and you get a bill in the mail. I mean, that's getting less and less and less. What was kept the United States Postal Service above, uh, above or their heads above water in the last decade or so has been the contract with Amazon. When you see the postal truck riding around on Sundays, you know, they're normally delivering product for Amazon. They're not delivering mail, so to speak, but rather, you know, they've, they've contracted with Amazon and, um, and they're doing the majority of what Amazon um, needs delivered on, on Sunday. But yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a, a legitimate debate to, to have. You know, should we or should we not allow the U.S. Postal Service to be funded by the U.S. government? Why don't we sell the United States Postal Service to FedEx and UPS and allow them to figure out how to make a profit on it? They'd probably do a much better job. Why? Because they're, they're competing. I will argue this. I've never seen any research, but it would interest me to know how much better or not the United States Postal Service is since they've got to the package delivery business and are competing directly with UPS and FedEx. You see where I'm headed? Mm-hmm. I mean, if Amazon trusts them to deliver their goods, Amazon's got to they're gonna place have to certain... Hold, yeah, but hold them into you account. better believe it. I mean, Amazon says, hey, we're going to let you do this now, but you can't perform at 80% while FedEx and UPS are performing at 95 or better. So, um, but, but no, I mean, I, I think there's always an opportunity to make government smaller and put those responsibilities in the hand of private sector businesses who have to do what? Make a profit, be efficient, be affordable, be competitive. Anytime we can do that, we normally enhance the quality of service and make it more affordable. 843-661-0937. Let's take a break. Back in just a minute. Talking about canceling athletic events and, and, and the likes, what is the most important number in all of sports? We began the show this morning talking about numbers, inundate you with numbers, this number of economists, this many are liberal, this many are libertarian. Tomorrow I'm going to do a lot of work on the presidential election in the midterms. I'm still working with Kahaley, trying to get him lined up. He's really, really extremely busy right now. I mean, extremely busy. Interesting, I sent him a letter from Politico yesterday, an article that I found in Politico, and he said, they will never quote me. I said, why? He said, because I trash the science of modeling. I mean, I'm the outlier. I mean, he's not the only guy, but he says they'll never quote me because I trash the methodology that's currently being used. Um, Robert Cahaley will be a a polling legend the second Wednesday in November or a guy that got lucky for a year or two or three or an election cycle or two or three. I mean, if the Republican overperforms by somewhere around four percentage points, which is kind of what Robert believes, he will be a legend in the world of polling forever. But if the Republicans lose Pennsylvania, lose Arizona, lose Georgia, um, win a nail-biter in Ohio, win a nail-biter in Florida, win a nail-biter in North Carolina, Robert will be the guy that was in bed with Trump 
and just went out and polled because Trump wanted certain data, you know, constructed a certain way. And um, Robert, as they say, and take the money and run. Um, so we'll see how that how that pans out. But tomorrow we're going to really get specific about some numbers, some Biden uh, headwinds, some Republican tailwinds, some Republican headwinds that I think we've got to. Um, it's it's not as simple as this, but it kind of sort of is. If the if the election is about Trump, it's not going to be a red wave. If the election's about Biden, it is going to be a red wave because you can't have a 39% approval rating. 74% of the Americans believe the country's heading in a bad direction and win an election unless there's some other feature that is even more dominant. I think even Jen Psaki, you know, former press secretary for the president, now, what, NBC correspondent or pundit, I think she even said that the other day on television. Well, and it's not just Biden, it's the Biden record. I mean, Biden has been a miserable failure. Biden sucks at the job. I mean, there was nothing to suggest he wasn't going to suck at the job, but I think he sucked even worse than we expected him to suck. Uh, <laughs> but, but anyway, you know, it is what it is, and, and they're running away from their record because we got inflation, you got, you know, economic uncertainty, uh, this, this, you know, I, I'll, you'll hear something in the next 24 hours about the, um, I mean, this is only the what third or fourth storm that we're really dealing with, or has been a threat, imminent threat to the, uh, to the mainland U S but, but you can rest assured it will be how unusual is it for a storm to hit Naples? I mean, we never have a storm. It's been a hundred years mm. since we have, uh, this Global is extreme warning. weather. I mean, th- this is an example of extreme Climate weather change. Yeah. Never before has Tampa. And the Naples area, it'll knock down really? all the Ruth Chris Steakhouses and ding up some of the uh, Lexus and Mercedes in Naples. But this is a sign of climate change. Mm-hmm. Forget that we've having a, a fairly tame um, hurricane season. After us, we told every year it's going to be the all-time worst record in history uh, by the climate terrorist. Um, <laughs> but but all of a sudden, we're, we'll be told in the next 24 hours the rarity of this storm. Right. It's a Category 4 hurricane hitting Naples. And if you, surely, believe, you believe that. Yeah. I mean, surely that has to do with something with the oceans rising or the oceans warming or whatnot. What is the biggest number in sports? I mean, is it 755? Is it 714? I mean, if you're a tennis fan, is it 237? I mean, I read yesterday the consecutive number of weeks that Roger Federer was ranked number one in the world 237 he was number one over 300 weeks but for 237 of those weeks he was consecutively ranked number one in the world is it 56 games you know the hitting streak is it 406 the last year someone hit 400 in major league baseball give me a football number i mean how many world championships have tom brady won seven yeah i think seven super bowls i mean is it that you know what is the number I mean, if you're, I mean, I'm a NASCAR guy. I would lean towards 755. I, okay. I think so. The all-time home run record. Yep. That's an interesting. Yep. What number? I mean, it obviously matters at what sport you care most about. I mean, how many masters? How many majors? I think Nicholas won what? 20 majors, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Um, depending on what you know, Bill Elliott drove a race car at Talladega, 212.809. My, that's a bunch of numbers, but that's a number I remember because I'm a NASCAR fan. Um, do we have time for a call or not? Okay, we don't have enough yeah. time for a call. Time sorry, wrap it up. Uh, sorry about that. Got about nine seconds to say goodbye and probably get something wrong about that. <laughs> enjoy, enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.